Jason Prawl isn't only a longevity and optimal health practitioner, he's the writer, director, and producer of the Human Longevity Project. We'll talk about why Cuba should be the next blue zone, despite the fact that Cubans eat a diet high in pork fat. You can watch his film for free starting May 7th. Go to nutritionheretic.com forward slash long life to sign up. Jason Prawl is coming up next on the Nutrition Heretic Podcast. Meet Gina. Gina wanted to lose weight, so she spent two years fasting, detoxing, and dabbling with vegan diets while practicing a shit ton of yoga to lose 25 pounds. But it took so long that nobody noticed. Then, Gina started Frenching her food by eating fatty cheeses, butter, sausages, and red meat, and lost 15 more pounds in only two months. Everybody noticed this time. Frenching your food unlocks the riddle of weight loss that skinny French chicks use to slim down, look young, and live longer despite doing everything wrong. Be like Gina. Start Frenching your food today by visiting nutritionheretic.com forward slash Frenching. Fat is bad for you. I just pop a pill and I'm fine. Meat is murder. <laughs> it's time for bad food punishment. It's time for real nourishment. It's time for the nutrition heretic. The following program is provided as information only and may not be construed as medical or health advice. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure any disease. No action or inaction should be taken solely on the basis of the information provided here. Please consult with a licensed healthcare professional or doctor on any matter relating to your health and well-being. Aloha and welcome to the Nutrition Heretic Podcast. My name is Adrienne Hughes, Certified Nutritionist and the Nutrition Heretic. Today, I want to bring back uh, to you guys something that I, I've talked about maybe once or twice on the podcast, which is the Blue Zones. Because as you know, we had someone come to our island about three, three and a half years ago, and he's talking about Blue Zones. He had everybody riled up, and now all the restaurants in town want to get a Blue Zone certification. Problem was, I sat next to a woman who was like nodding the whole time, and you know, she was like, yeah, this sounds great. I can drink wine at five. And then I turned to her and I said, yeah, but what about Cuba? Because Cuba doesn't seem to fit this, this model. And it's, and I feel like, like some of this data has been cherry picked. So, um, I was excited when I found out about today's guest heretic, who is Jason Prawl. He's from the Human Longevity Project. Uh, and it's a, a film and it talks about these, I, places that have been identified as blue zones. Uh, but he's going to set the record straight. He's going to tell me what I missed in this uh, conversation and really what the blue zones are. So if you can please give a round of applause for Jason Prawl. Welcome. <laughs> hey, thanks. <laughs> thanks for having me. You know, we, we were talking before before we got on air and I, there was a lot of mana, I feel like, in this conversation. Uh, so yes. I love it. Yes, yes, yes. You're getting all Hawaiian-y on me there too. I, so. I have to. <laughs> So, um, as I said, the Big Island has been identified as one of the blue zones. 
um, specifically, I believe it's specifically Waimea, where I live, and Hilo, which is the on the uh, east side of the island. Uh, but talk to me about the blue zones, because I think for the few people who do understand what blue zones are, they don't really understand the history of how, you know, why are they called blue zones? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a fascinating concept. And there was, there's been sort of a lot of work done over the last 40 years or so on this, on this idea. And I think that the, the crux of this is, is, you know, we're starting to see our health decline where we see certain pockets around the planet where people seem to be healthy and living into their 90s and 100s without disease. And so I think the question's always been why, you know, what's, what's going on in these regions? What can we learn? What's special? And, you know, um, one of my favorite people in this space is, is Michel Poulon, who is a, a demographer, a researcher out of Belgium. And he, he was really looking at, I think his paper came out in 2000, where he was looking at and identified um, uh, these specific villages on the island of Sardinia in, in Italy. And he, he did all, a lot of the work in terms of verifying their ages and these type of things to, to see if there's this uh, sort of a, a higher concentration of people making it to 100 than, than might be statistically probable, right? So it's, it's more of a statistical thing that we're talking about when we think of these longevity areas around the world. And, and Michelle, is, as I understand it, the, the primary person that really did a lot of the scientific work um, and then they kind of partnered with National Geographic. And I don't know how the whole story went down, but essentially this idea of the Blue Zones was born. And, you know, they included Costa Rica, uh, a certain part of Costa Rica, that is, the Nikoyan Peninsula, um, Okinawa, Japan as an island, um, Sardinia as an island, and uh, Ikaria, Greece, which is a, an island in Greece. And then the, uh, another one that was brought in, which was Loma Linda, California. And as I understand it, according to, to Michelle, when I spoke with him, he, he told me uh, in his determination that, that while Loma Linda was labeled the blue zone, which technically anything can be labeled the blue zone if you're the one who sort of owns that, 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 that title of blue zone, or that name of blue zone. But, but from his standpoint, it wasn't really statistically meaningful. Um, that Loma Linda was sort of brought in as the sort of this, the thing, it was like a U.S. location, right? So there was no U.S. location. And so he, they, the people that decided to go with blue zones wanted some sort of U.S. location, and that that was brought in. And so um, that was kind of one of the ones that was included in the original kind of study. And so, you know, there's this idea that that be, we, if we look at these regions, we can identify the, the characteristics that they all share. And therefore, if we implement those characteristics, then we can all live to 100. Right. And, you know, I think there's a lot of really interesting work that's been done on that stuff. And, and I like the idea, but I think from my standpoint, you know, I, I, as I've been working as a health practitioner with people that have autoimmune disease and cancer and digestive issues and hormonal imbalances and skin problems and all kinds of stuff. Right. And so I, I kind of took a different framework. You know, I, I looked at this from a different lens and I saw that, that the things that were being talked about in terms of these longe longevity areas, I was like, man, they're missing a lot. You know, mm -hmm. it, 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 there's, there's so many things that they're not talking about. And we, we have to look at this from a new perspective because the, the world is changing. So we can't look at those areas and pretend to think that, A, that, that they've been fully flushed out, these ideas, mm -hmm. and B, even if they had been, the world's changing so fast, so how can we possibly apply those things to us? Because here's the crux of the matter. If you talk to a 100-year-old person in Costa Rica today, that means they were born in 1918. Right. Right? And so by the time they were 50, that would be 1968. In 1968, there was no electricity 
in the Nicoyan Peninsula in Costa Rica. So they lived 50 years of their life without electricity. Right. It's a little bit different of a life than the one you and I are leading today. Right. So how can we possibly compare their lifestyle, their characteristics, their traits to ours? So I think we have to take a historical look at this before we can even open the discussion into the reality of the situation that is leading to you know, good health and long life in these areas around the world. Right. Well, I got to tell you, nobody was more surprised than me when I sat in the audience and, you know, for this Blue Zones presentation and Loma Linda showed up. I was like, somewhere in the U.S.? <laughs> like, we have people in the U.S., like in a cluster of 100-year-old people? Right. That doesn't seem right. Um, and, you know, when I looked at the synopsis through that lens, I'm thinking, yeah, you know, I'm not sure, like... To say something like, oh, you know, in, in Icaria or, you know, somewhere in Greece or Italy or the Uni United States, oh, they don't drink milk. And, you know, that's like one of the things that, that we were told to take home with us. Um, right. Well, they sure as hell weren't drinking rice milk. You know, they weren't, <laughs> they weren't exactly. drinking, you know, they're not, they're not, you know, and not to mention that just because they're not drinking milk doesn't mean that they're not consuming dairy products, right? We right. know that throughout Greece, throughout Italy, um, including the islands, these like sheep milk and goat milk cheeses are very popular. And, you know, there's in, in many parts of Greece, I know that they take uh, the, the fat from the goat milk and they actually stir it into this kind of a, it's almost like a condensed milk sauce that they make. It's not sweet, but it's, it's, you know, it's, it's just condensed the hell down like maple syrup is, right? Yeah. And, well, and, and Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I no, no, no. I was just, I was just gonna. No, no, no. I was just gonna say. So when I hear somebody use, you know, kind of, um, yeah, you know, this is another thing that they had in common. They just don't drink milk. Uh, you're not. That's a little too much of an easy answer. Yeah. Because even yeah. though I haven't been to these specific places labeled blue zones, I've been to enough of the world that I can say, well, yeah, they may not drink milk. Doesn't mean they're not getting milk protein. Right. Well, I can tell you that. So I've been to all of the places that have been labeled a blue zone. Okay, I've I've been there. I've spoken with these people. Um, I've I've toured around these villages and gotten a sense for their lifestyles. And I can tell you that they all consumed animal products. So if anybody tries to tell you that they uh, are vegetarian or vegan now and or were a vegetarian or vegan back in the day, it's completely false. Right. Absolute. It's absolute nonsense. Um, in fact, that that's ridiculous to think so because. Uh, if, Sardinia, for example, the, the, the two villages, the, the primary village regions called Oleastra and Villa Grande, these are mountainous villages, okay? Most of the, the men in these villages that have really good, you know, they, it's the men actually that have really good longevity in, in, in uh, Sardinia. Mm. Um, women do too, but it's, it's a, it, men have particularly uh, great longevity compared to the rest of the is world. It, is that because the women are doing all the work? Uh, <laughs> No, but it actually is true that women do a lot, do a lot of the work in, in a lot of these places. Mm -hmm. um, but in, in Villa Grande in particular, and, and in Oliasta, in the mountainous regions of Sardinia, a lot of the men were shepherds. Mm -hmm. So they were actually walking you know, 30, 40 kilometers per day with their wow. herds of sheep. And so you know, sheep milk uh, was a huge component. Yeah. You know, pecorino cheese, this was a big thing for them. And a lot of the things that they would do, they would take the, the cheese, they would, they would walk 30 to 40 kilometers down the mountain to the sea, drop it off, trade it for fish, bring the fish back up to the village. So, I mean, to, to think that they weren't eating meat or cheese or dairy or anything like this is complete nonsense. Now, you know, a lot of them weren't eating or drinking cow's milk, uh, but, but again, we have to look at, we have to take a historical context here. 
If we think about, let's think about Costa Rica, just as an easy example here for us in the U.S. If you're living in Costa Rica in 1960, okay, um, in a village, you know, a small, small area, you're basically responsible for your own food, right? There's no electricity. means there's no refrigeration. There's no freezers. Uh, there's no transport of, of, of food. You know, basically what you eat is what is around you. So you're eating fruits off trees, which are wild. You're eating wild greens and these type of things that are all around you. You're eating uh, wild tubers, perhaps, if you can find those. Um, and you're growing your own foods. So this means that you will be making decisions about your diet based on your geography, right? Meaning the Costa Rican geography, the season. So when it's papaya season, they eat lots of papayas. When it's mango season, they eat lots of mangoes, right? You're in Hawaii. You understand this. You have a wet and dry season, right? Yep. Like that's kind of how it works. And the, the fruits change, right? Mm -hmm. So even though it's like 90 degrees, like all year round, essentially, uh, you still have a wet and dry season, which means the fruits change, right? So, yep. so you have alterations in the food. And, and if you were living on the, on the island, on any of the Hawaiian islands, um, before electricity was around, you would be guided by the seasonal aspects of food. So if you were living in a natural way like that, would you be planting, let's say you were going to plant some, some uh, food, would you be planting you know, lettuce and uh, kale and chard and spinach? Not really. Yeah. That's kind of silly, right? It doesn't fill you up. Right? Right. Like how many salads you have to eat versus how much work are you doing? Yes, right? exactly. What would you plant? You would probably plant things that have you know, complex carbohydrates, beans, taro. Rice, Corn, you know, <laughs> these are the things that were in in Costa Rica, and you're absolutely right. In in Hawaii, there's lots of taro, right? You have plantains, I think, probably. You oh, plantains, have yeah. We we have plantains, yeah. and they're not as popular as just regular eating bananas, but um, okay. But you have those; they're same, starchy kind yeah. of. You, you know, know these type of things. Yeah, I was gonna say, you know what we have, and this is you know the whole like Captain Bly thing is uh, ulu, which is breadfruit. Ah, okay. Yeah, that's so. That's there you the go. So, so and this is the thing, right? That's totally unique to that area. Um, or at least not, you know, it's not everywhere. It's not going to be found in Arizona, right? right. So, um, so we have regional aspects to food and they're driven by the seasons and you're going to harvest and grow the things that make sense that are going to basically give you energy and sustain you with ideally the least amount of work, right? This is mm -hmm. sort of the aspect of efficiencies. And so, uh, you know, in Costa Rica, one of the most common things they would do, they would eat lowland paca, right? Which is a, a sort of a wild animal, right? So they would hunt paca. They would they would hunt the the sort of mountain the mountainous deer they would be sort of the deer in the area they would hunt those uh, and they would they would have pig you know they would have their own pigs so they would raise pigs and why would you raise a pig because it doesn't take a lot of area right? it takes a very small pen you can feed it leftovers from the garden mm -hmm. you know it's a very easy thing to take care of and then once a year or whatever you slaughter the pig and you have lots of meat you know uh, so so this is you have to think about their lifestyle in order to understand their diets. So, you know, they're, they're, back in the day, they pro there probably wasn't a lot of places that had a lot of cows because cows require a lot of area, yeah. requires lots of fencing, requires lots of, you know, feeding and, and maintaining. And then you slaughter a cow and you don't have, uh, you know, refrigeration. So now you have a ton of meat that you have to either consume or find a way to preserve yeah. in a relative. So pigs are smaller, right? So you see how it all makes sense? Like oh, it's just sure. logical. Right. And chickens, same thing. Chickens were, were, were very easily consumed. And so this is what you see. In fact, one of the one of the people that we um, interviewed down in Costa Rica, her name is Christina Castillo. Um, she was we were literally uh, interviewing her on her sort of porch. And there's chickens, there's roosters in the background that are like, you know, crowing in the in like the interview. You see chickens <laughs> walking. Uh, there's a little piglet running around. Um, this is how they live. And so 
you know, to think that they're vegetarian or vegan is just insane. You, why would you be vegan or vegetarian? You don't have these preconceived notions when you're trying to survive and trying to live in a healthy way. So we have to honor the, the historical aspect of this. And the only common meat that we found in the places we went was, was pork. That was the common meat. Right. And that's what brought me to Cuba. Because, you know, I'm, I'm watching this presentation and I'm thinking to myself, why isn't he talking about Cuba? Because don't they have like more centenarians per capita than anywhere in the world right now? <laughs> and, yeah. And, 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 and they eat a lot show. of pork. They're like, well, we can't figure it out. They smoke cigars, drink and eat pork and peanuts all day. What's going on? <laughs> yeah. And I talked to Michelle Fallon about this. I said, you know, what, 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 if, if you were going to try to find a longevity area, what, what's the sort of next on your list? And he said, you know, I think maybe Cuba. And I said, oh, that's interesting. And I said, it kind of makes sense, right? So they, they were sort of this, they've been locked out of the Western influence, right? Because of sort of the, the, whole, the political issues, right? So yes. the economic, you know, political issues between Cuba and the US, there hasn't been a lot of influence. So this is interesting, right? So now we're starting to see that this modern influence has a negative impact on health and longevity. And Cuba being an island and being fairly isolated from the Western influence was able to maintain their sort of old ways. They haven't moved into this modern era to such a large degree, but they were able to maintain the historical context and sort of the societal cultural values that have been there. And so, and this is why you see islands do so well, in my opinion, from a longevity standpoint, because mm -hmm. they maintain cultural heritage and they eat local foods. Same thing with Hawaii. I mean, as far as I know, uh, pork is pr pretty big in, in old historical Hawaiian culture as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not uh, as far as I know, not pre like, you know, European influence. Sure. Uh, but I sometimes, you know, you go to like the historical museum and you have to wonder how much of the information you're getting is tainted mm -hmm. through that lens. Absolutely. Because I do find people kind of rewriting their own history. Like even when I lived in Spain in college and the woman I lived with, she would, you know, everything is fried in Spain, right? So you, she's like cooking and she's she's pouring a bottle of sunflower oil into a pan. She's like, man, I hate oil, but I don't use that much. And she's just pouring and pouring and pouring. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm thinking, and at the time I was like totally fat phobic. And I mean, not that sunflower oil is the best for you anyway, but, um, you know, I'm watching her and I'm like, she's saying one thing, but she's doing something so totally different. And I think that kind of set the stage for me to notice that when people are saying like, oh, no, we really don't eat such and such. And then you turn around and they're eating exactly what they say that they don't eat. Um, yeah. that a lot of people are trying to retrofit their their diet into something that cons that's considered socially acceptable by, quote unquote, you know, pro progressive people. Well, yeah. And, and this is what we have to be careful of because, um, you know, I mean, I think what, if you just look at, at, you know, and think about things, right? Like why, why are there cultural culinary traditions? Mm -hmm. right? Why does Italian have its own sort of culinary practice or culinary dishes? Why does Eritrean food have its own culinary sort of traditions? Why does Cuban food have its own culinary traditions? That's because those are the foods that grow in those areas and the recipes and the culinary practices have been sort of optimized for that, those foods. Yeah. Right. This is why Russian food is Russian food and Chinese food is Chinese food. And it, it's only until it's only since the modern day when we started to move foods around the globe, store foods in refrigerators and freezers, you know, uh, grow foods all year round, et cetera, manipulate the environment such that this starts get, get, getting confusing. If you go back 200 years, 
everywhere on the planet was eating foods that were basically local. Right. There, there was no other option. So we have to remember that for most of our, you know, most of human history, we were eating foods in the natural way. And there was no debate about vegan or vegetarianism or keto or paleo or mm-hmm. whatever, you know, because you wouldn't, you wouldn't have a dogma. You would just eat the foods that were around you that were part of your culinary cultural tradition. And those, those, the reason that they're tradition is because those are the foods that tended to optimize or, or keep you healthy. Yeah. So it's not like people are going to make stupid decisions and then find ill health and like, oh, well, that's what you know we're doing because we decided somebody wrote a book, right? So, um, <laughs> but that's know, that's where we find ourselves today, isn't it? <laughs> and that's where we're at. Well, and it's because we've lost touch. So this yeah, is absolutely. the thing. So yeah. how do we regain this? We have to get back in touch with the seasons. We have to get back in touch with nature. We have to get back in touch with gardening. And 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 it's really interesting, you know. If you go garden, if you if you just plant a little garden, it doesn't have to be much. Just a little planter box. It can be a little like half whiskey barrel. Just something, something, and you start to plant something. All of a sudden, you start to get a feel for in for understanding nature, yeah. right? I mean, even it can be something as simple as carrots, right? Watch how long it takes a carrot to grow. All of a sudden, you have a different appreciation for that carrot. You're not mm-hmm. going to throw it away because you you know that it took you know three months to grow. Right. Um, you start to see, okay, I can't plant this then at this time of year. I have to plant it at this time of year. Oh, I waited too long to 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 pull it, or I, I picked it too soon, or I overwatered, or there's you know I did whatever. You start to get a feel for this stuff, and you just see uh, this sort of cycle of nature. And I think we've just lost lost touch with that so much, right? That we are now confused on what do I do? Do I eat coconut oil? You know, I read this you know research paper that said coconut oil is good. It's like well. You know, I mean, my historical, my, my ancestral heritage from like Northern Europe, I don't know how many coconuts they had, you know, in right. Germany and France and the UK. Right, right, right. <laughs> so I think we have to have a historical context of our, of our heritage, mm-hmm. but also in our current state and our current region of environments. Like, you know, and, and if you, even if in places that we're growing coconut, you know, or palm oil, would they really be downing? modified coconut oils in massive amounts or were they eating the coconut? (laughs) Right, right. Well, you know, I got to tell you about coconut oil because my family's from Jamaica and a cousin of mine, she went to go visit her, gosh, eight years ago and she was complaining about joint problems and I'm watching her and I'm like, you're cooking with margarine and vegetable oil. Why don't you just Mm -hmm. like switch it for that coconut that's like right above your head? And so she, you know, she was like, wow, my American cousin wants the coconut oil. So she like made a bunch and sent it to me. And, uh, and then she also, um, you know, started making it for herself. And she sent me a message about a month later. And she said, you realize that all of my joint pain is gone. Mm. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, because you're eating something that is like, you know, no, as local as you can get. And it's growing right above your head. It's natural. It's not the stuff that came out of it. It's not processed and fumigated and you know, yeah, stripped that, of God knows what. Well, and that's and that's what we saw in Costa Rica. We actually talked to a few people, and they they were suggesting they they actually are aware. They're aware that uh, of what's happening, and they used to use pig fat for damn near everything in, damn, in terms of their cooking. Straight. <laughs> pig pig fat, and now they're being told. You know, the culture is now telling them, or the let's say the health people or whoever is telling them to switch over to other plant oils. Mm-hmm. And they're like, I don't understand. It doesn't make any sense to me why, you know, the, the chicharrones, right? This is sort of a fried pork, right? And so 
they're like, I don't understand. We've been eating this way for a long time. and We've always been healthy. Why are we told that this is not health anymore? Right. So, so, so we're starting to see this shift and it's all, it's all fabricated. It's all nonsense. Right. And so, um, when you start adulterating food, when you start processing food, when you start eating food as season, and when you start, you know, growing, throwing pesticides on foods, all of a sudden, yes, the food landscape becomes very difficult and very confusing and you're not sure what to do. But if you remove all that nonsense, you get back to organic, whole, natural foods that are in your environment, it's not confusing at all. And you're going to find that you're going to end up being healthier because of that. And this is all it is, is aligning with nature. All it is is, is going back and, and getting into harmony with the way things are. And, you, and look at every culture. I know the Hawaiian culture has this. The, uh, the Asian cultures have this. This idea of balance, this idea mm-hmm. of flow, this idea of operating sort of in the natural state of things. And there's tons of cultures that speak about this. And, and, and this is that thing about the blue zones and the longevity zones and all these things. Just because something has been identified as some longevity zone is, is kind of irrelevant. There's people living past 100 in, you know, all parts of the world. You know, there's tribal societies. There are, you know, societies in the Himalayas. There's, there's all kinds of people right. all around the world living, living past 100 and living free of disease. So we can't look at areas and think that there's something magical about a place because it's not the place. It's about the communities. It's about the societies. It's about the individuals. It's about the lifestyles. And when those all sort of operate together in harmony, good things happen for everybody. Right, right, right. Now, you know, it's so many questions come to mind. And, you know, because we're, we're talking a lot about the food element. And I guess I want, I do want to address this because I know there's somebody listening saying, but what about India? Because, you know, there's, there's uh South India tends to, you know, air more towards the, the vegetarian side of the spectrum. But one thing that's, that I know for a fact is, uh, ignored is that the food is not sterilized to the point that it is in the West. So even though technically you might consider them vegetarian, uh, people are getting bugs and things that piggyback on their vegetarian food. The other thing is that there is a producer of, um, I'm I'm drawing up, I think his name is Sandeep Agarwal, who is, uh, owns a ghee company based out of New Jersey. And he, his family has been making ghee for seven generations. And yeah, I, said, I actually get it from him. Okay. I actually, so so yeah. I, I, I only know that name because I buy, I buy, his, I buy that product off Amazon. Yeah, he, he, was, he was my neighbor. <laughs> and so, well, not, not, not neighbor, neighbor, but like we lived in a, like maybe five miles away from each other um, in New Jersey. And he was saying that, yeah, like, you know, now in India, there's like a, a rash of people dying on their vegetarian diet because they've replaced their ghee with vegetable oil. Yeah. You know, not to well, mention, you know, the GMO scandal. Yeah. The, the India thing's interesting, you know, and I don't know the reality here. I, I, I've read some things that, you know, um, this whole uh, vegetarian diet was, was promoted to the lower class system years yes. and years and years ago. Uh, I don't know if that's true. I don't know if that's the reality, but here's what I'll say about diet. Okay. Um, humans are very adaptive. Okay. Uh, the, the reality is with diet, um, it's not you that does the digestion for the most part. You, we actually don't do much with the actual food we consume. It's mostly our microbiota. So it's, it's really our microbiota that determine how well we're using food. For example, Indians, they, you know, in that, that whole India region, actually, uh, they have lots of turmeric, right? And we all hear about the, the health benefits of turmeric. Yeah. Well, okay. 
again, I'm from sort of Northern European heritage. How much turmeric would my sort of ancestry been exposed to? Probably not a lot. Mm. So why would I think that I'm actually very good at extracting the benefits, if you will, from turmeric? Right. Why would my gut microbiota, why would my mitochondria, why would my DNA understand that signal? They pr- it probably wouldn't understand it as well as somebody that had been using it for generation after generation. And the easiest way I can explain that is that is the Japanese study that was done that showed that um, the, the Japanese that had been consuming a lot of uh, sushi basically borrowed an enzyme from the fish that allowed them to break down seaweed. Huh. And so this is the adaptive nature of humans, and it operates through these microbiota. So basically, this, this sort of uh, gene transfer occurred that allowed the Japanese population that consumes lots of, of fish and seaweed, and uh, they, they can now metabolize seaweed better than you and I can. Mm. So now, if, if, you had, if you moved there uh, and, and, and followed the traditional diet of lots of sushi and seafoods and these type of things, over generations, perhaps you would have that as well. So this is what we have to understand about diet, is that we are very, very adaptable. This is why we see people in the North eating lots of, uh, you know, more of a fat-based, animal-based diet, because there's not a lot of apples that grow in Alaska, you know, in, in November. Uh, and yet we see in the, in the equatorial regions, we see lots of fruit, we see rice, we see, uh, you know, all these starchy carbohydrates Mm -hmm. and vegetables and these type of things, tons of carbohydrates because that's what grows there. And so we have to recognize that we are very adaptable and we will always adapt to our environments given enough time. And if you think about these Island nations that tend to be known for their longevity, well, they don't do a lot of moving around. They stay there for a long period of time, generation after generation, and they're probably really good at integrating with that local dietary source of food, whatever it might be, right? Yeah. So in Sardinia, it's bread. That's yeah. a, for years, and I mean, generations and generations, that was the primary thing they were eating is bread, cheese, uh, tomatoes, uh, what else? Um, that comes to mind off the top of my head, you know, and, and animal products. So right. we have to recognize that we, we are very adaptable and so there is no right diet. There is no good way. Vegetarian, uh, high fat, animal based. We're, we can move to either either side of the equation, and it's through the gut microbiota that that allows us to have this adaptability. Right, and I also think that our adaptability has some is is greatly influenced by uh, something you touched on before, which is just the seasons. Uh, so where I I think people get hung up in, I'm going to adopt this diet. And this is going to be my truth for the rest of my life, you know, just mm-hmm. like a really easy, you know, go to. And then it's I've and I say this all the time on the podcast that because people have so much less involvement in spiritual, you know, churches and things like that, it seems like the, the diet has now become the church for a lot mm-hmm. of people. So you talked about community, uh, mm-hmm. you know, people are building these kind of echo chambers of community through a diet that they can identify and Mm -hmm. point a finger to and say, I am this, you know, it used to be, I am Catholic or I am Jewish. And now it's like, I am vegan. I am paleo, (laughs) you know, and, and then we, we, you know, surround ourselves by people who believe that. But unfortunately uh, we leave the church and we lose our community too often. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot to unpack there because, 
you know, at the end of the day, I think we're losing our identity and we're losing our meaning. And so mm-hmm. I think we're searching for meaning and identity and community in the wrong places. And, oh, and sure. we identify ourselves. And we identify ourselves with our diseases, right? Oh, yeah. I'm Hashimoto's or I'm autoimmune, whatever, right? And so it's like, whoa, we're, we're identifying with the problem yeah. that we're, we're experiencing. And so um, I think that that is a problem. And if you get caught up, Finding, you know, if you find yourself being sort of dogmatic about a diet or a way of eating, I think, you know, the best thing you can do is sort of let go of that because it's not serving you and it's not reality. Um, there, there is no, there's nothing on paper that matches your true biology, right? So, so let's let's just take autoimmune paleo. This is a very sort of popular diet for those that suffering from autoimmune disease and, and a lot of inflammation. Well, it's complete nonsense. It doesn't make any sense actually in reality. Um, and there's nothing that you can put in a book that's going to say, okay, this one's good for Sally and this one's good for Mike because it's autoimmune paleo. Well, Sally and Mike are very different people. Yeah. You know, Sa- Sally is 24 year old female and that has certain situations going on. And Mike is a 46 year old male that has other things, you know, and so they're very different people. And we have to recognize that our diets should be changing based on, uh, the state that we're in. Mm-hmm the uh, goals and objectives and lifestyle factors that, that we embody and the sort of the cycles and the seasons of what we're doing. So, you know, I mean, if, if, if you're somebody who loves to work out or, or competes in some sport or something like that, um, you're going to need probably a little bit different of an eating style and regimen and foods than somebody who is a little bit more sedentary than, you know, so everything, everything factors in. And, and the real way to get to the bottom of this is to understand what's working for you. Forget the, the labels and the diets. You know, I think step one for everybody needs to be asking themselves this. Is this a whole food that's mm. unadulter- unadulterated, completely unadulterated? Okay. Second question: Is it organic? You know, uh, that's question number two. And if those are your, if you're answering, you know, if those are in line, you know, if it's if it's a whole food that has been unadulterated and it is organic, you're off to a dang good start. That's probably ninety-five yeah. percent of the problem right there. Right. And you know, people are spending five dollars on organic apple chips from Whole Foods instead of just eating a damn apple. Yeah. And it it it, it blows me away. So an apple, an organic apple, yeah, I mean, like what, 60 cents or something? I mean, yeah. versus organic apple chips that have been probably, there's like sulfur dioxide as a preservative. They don't have the water, the structured water in right. them. They, they lost their microbiota that coated the, the skin. You're, you're not eating the seeds, which have tremendous benefits. Um, you know, And so you're paying more. Eating something out of a package, you're polluting the planet. And I was just about to say that you got this package to deal with. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's ridiculous. So so we're 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 in the name of trying to solve problems, we're we're creating more. And all we have to do is go back to eating real foods. I don't care if it's sweet potatoes or white potatoes or taro or you know uh, meats or whatever. Like if we just go back to eating real food, then and and it's organic and natural. I mean, you're solving most of the problem, but most people are not willing to do that. They want to subscribe to a diet. They want a recipe guide and they want to buy packaged food that has some protein bar and the label says it's all organic or it's all plant-based. Right. Oh, I have, I can have chocolate too. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. There's there's the, there's the, the people literally want their cake 
and eat it too, right? So, I mean, right. We're always looking for our excuses, right? Whether it's yeah. to eat a ton of bacon or whether it's to eat a ton of chocolate or whether it's to eat a ton of whatever. We have these excuses. And, yeah. and, and unfortunately, our, our palates are changing because of this. And it, it's just a big problem. And if we just go back to eating real, organic, normal foods again, it, it just doesn't get confusing anymore. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, one of the running jokes on the podcast is that every time somebody tells me, well, I believe in everything in moderation, they're holding like a bag of donuts, you know, and, yeah. <laughs> and they're like chowing down on donuts. They're like, I really believe in everything in moderation. I'm like, well, you know, six donuts in one sitting, not exactly one, what, what I think that uh, that term means. Yeah. Well, I, I find it funny that we, we're demonizing corn, for example, yeah. and, you know, we eat an organic cricket bar with all kinds of weird processed stuff. Yes. And I'm like, come on guys. Like we're, we're really just, <laughs> we're going off the deep end here, you know, yeah. and we're blaming eggplant because it's a nightshade and we're blaming, I mean, it's just like, it never ends. We're right. blaming, we're always blaming something. We're blaming fruits, you know, but I mean, it's just like, it's, it's insane. Um, gluten and eggs and dairy and corn and soy and all these things. Look, if we're eating organic, real, natural, normal foods in their whole form, none of them are a problem. For right. most of us, as long as we are in a state of somewhat decent health. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, mean, I remember years ago, uh, we went to one of these kind of like old timey, uh, not colonial Williamsburg, you know, but, you know, a little old timey village somewhere in the northeast. And my my mom was there and my daughter was uh, my older girl was about three years old. And so uh, we stopped in a place to get something to eat. And like all they had was processed, 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 except for a container of strawberries. And it mm. wasn't organic. And my mom turns to me, she's like, you better not buy that because organic strawberry, uh, you know, if, if strawberries aren't organic, they're going to kill you. You know, basically is what she's like, yeah. you know, your sister's friend told me this. And I said to her, mom, it's the only real food actually in here. Right. <laughs> you know, I'd rather, you know, just wash it off, bless it and, and eat that and, you know, give my kid that than to give her a box of Captain Crunch. Something whatever, processed. You know, yeah. yeah, something totally you know, yeah. not, uh, not even food, let alone organic for crying out right. loud, you know? Right. And, and, and unfortunately the organic label is sort of kind of a whitewashed thing at this, at this point anyway. Um, it's not to say that we shouldn't do it, but it's, it's not as good as I think we'd all hope or we'd all think it should be. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I mean, the thing is, is you're totally spot on in my opinion, because you can take something that's, let's say it's, it's actually hundred percent organic and it's real. There's no pesticides. Let's, right. let's just assume that was a thing. As soon as you start processing something, meaning that you pressurize it, you heat it, you uh, adulterate it in any way, you're changing the protein protein structures, you're 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 changing the carbohydrate structures, you're changing the food itself. And you know, again, take an apple chip, you're losing the microbiota. Yes, you're you're changing the genetic information because you are adulterating that that food. And so we have to recognize that. Nature is wise. She's a she's a wise creature, and if we just listen to her a little bit and go back to the way we are supposed to be living, then we get the health. And, and I say supposed to sort of loosely because there's no supposed to be anything. You can do whatever the heck you want. Right. But if you're looking for health and you don't understand why you're not healthy, well, just look at how you're eating, look at how you're living, look at how you're thinking and, and feeling and sleeping, and these are the things, right? So we have to go back to sort of a more natural way of things, and. You know, if you want to hold on to your dogmas about how you think you should be eating, that's fine. But just recognize that you're probably going to continue to run into issues until you address the very fundamental things, which is stop adulterating foods, stop processing, and 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 stop spraying all this garbage on food. And when we do that, 
um, it's a miracle what happens. I mean, it's like our body starts to recognize these things again. Right. And, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, Natasha Campbell McBride, the founder of the GAPS diet, talks about is the fact that once upon a time, all of our food had probiotics in it. And uh, one of the things that I've been... Yes, exactly. And so recently, since I moved to Hawaii, I am learning about this system of farming called Korean natural farming. And it's based on ancient Korean and Japanese farming techniques. And -hmm. essentially what it is, is that where the conventional and even the, the, I'm going to call it conventional organics, look at, well, do we need more nitrogen? Do we need more phosphorus? So on and so forth. What we're actually doing with this system, and I'm so excited because I'm finally like fully getting how it works because I, I'm, I just, I'm, I'm converting a, a desert right now into a food forest. Um, and uh, what I'm realizing is that these uh, microbiota that are in the soil, that's essentially what we are nurturing through this system. And everything else, all the nutrients, everything else piggybacks on that. Right. Essentially, um, I'm, I'm, you know, this kind of in a nutshell, but what's so what's it, it really brings everything so full circle for me as a nutritionist uh, to see how the how immediate the soil responds when you you when you you take uh, essentially what you're doing is you're taking what they call IMOs, which are indigenous microorganisms from soil in a forest and you're bringing that into your space into your soil my soil is completely dead but in the areas where i have applied this i mean 24 hours i'm noticing oh my gosh my soil is actually holding water now it used to just bead right off the top um you know i'm seeing things break down the way that it would normally take you know hundreds of years (laughs) to break down um it's really just fascinating to see yeah. that and then to understand that this is, you talked about the meats, you know, that the meat, the eggs, the, the things that translate our environment to our bodies, you know, I mean, that's kind of like my theory on vaccination, if, <laughs> if you will. Um, but it's translating, you know, the allergens, you know, the things that, that make us sneeze, my goats eat that, they're converting it. And then, you know, we've got the, the microbiome of the, of the, uh, of the soil feeding into that entire thing. And it's, it's really just fascinating. Yeah. I mean, this is, how, this is how nature works, in my opinion. And we actually get into this a lot in the Human Longevity Project in the, in the film series, which is that it's all about the microbiota. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a microbiome inside our, our gut, right? We have it in our skin, on our skin. We have it in our eyeballs, in our liver, in our kidneys, in the vaginal canal. We have it in breast milk. We have it everywhere, in the brain. These microbiota, you know, and they contain viruses, bacteria, and and fungi, and yeasts, and all these things. They are sort of the ecosystem that really make us up. In in other words, you're probably you're actually less human than you think. You're more microbiota than you are human, and they and the microbiota guide more of your function than you do. So the, the question is: is are we? What is a human, right? And and are you are you just a transport vehicle for these microbiota, really? Um, and so I think we have to look at our inner ecosystem, which is our microbiota, and we have to look at the outer ecosystem. And it is the uh, interaction between these two systems. And when they are in balance and in harmony and communicating well, then our what we think of as our human body uh, functions well. Mm-hmm. And so 
this is the interesting thing is that if you if you look at health and longevity and these type of things it, 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 and not from a self-centered standpoint not from an egocentric standpoint but from a egoless standpoint in other words can i take care of the, the external environment and the internal environment let's take care of my microbiota let's take care of the outer environment mm-hmm. and if i do that then i get the health right so so it changes it kind of flips the whole thing on its head and you know you mentioned the microbiota in the soil i think this is this is what we're missing where we've destroyed the microbiota in, in mm-hmm. a lot of the soils. And the, the, it's the microbiota in the soils that really dictate the health of any living system that comes from the soil, right? And, and the same thing, there's a microbiota in the sea as well, destroying that, um, and in rivers and, and, and all the, the bodies of water. And it, it actually ties into the whole vegan vegetarian thing, which is kind of funny because, um, you know, there's this, this um, I mean, idea, idea that, that we shouldn't be eating animals, right? Yes. And this includes bugs because they technically are animals. And so, but what's really interesting is that the, the plants eat animals. Yes. The plants eat bugs. Right. And they, they, they're, they're sort of, they there's this mycorrhizal communication or, or relationship, meaning that there's fungi in the soil mm-hmm. that communicate with the plant. But the, let's say it's a dandelion or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. There's a relationship there. And the, the fungi will actually help they'll secrete acids and they'll break down these uh these bugs that will then be consumed by the plant mm-hmm. and so it's quite funny that the plant is eating an animal and yet we think you know from a moral high ground standpoint we shouldn't be eating animals and if i think we just realize that we're all part of the same ecosystem which is sort of uh, you know mother earth that we're all being right. sort of in this intertwined relationship and that we should all have respect for everything else and it's not a matter of eating something or not eating something it's about respect and mm. I find it very interesting that we 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 have a moral high ground when it comes to eating other animals, but we're we're fine with poisoning the planet, you know, yes. by dri- driving cars and and buying plastic and doing all those things. And I'm not I'm not standing on a soapbox. So I do all those things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I'm also not saying that it's morally wrong to do this thing, but it's okay for me to destroy the planet over here and do that thing. Right. So you know, we we have to really question our own morals here when we talk about what's important and i think we have to look at the whole ecosystem and the whole planet as a as a as an entire ecosystem and try to, to have much as much respect and reverence and care uh, uh, across the whole thing right because it's all it's all you can't separate it yes so i think this is this is where we're, we're I, i'm actually i'm happy that we're, we're moving in this direction i am uh i'm optimistic that things are changing um, we still have a long way to go, but I think we're waking up to the fact that we are really destroying the environment in, in pretty dramatic ways. And I think as, what we cannot escape is the fact that whatever we do to the environment gets reflected back upon us. Mm-hmm. This is why we're seeing infertility. This is why we're seeing disease. This is why we're seeing cancer. This is why we're seeing Alzheimer's. It's because we poison the planet with aluminum and mercury and lead and uh, glyphosate and yeah. DDT and on and on and on right so when you do that you cannot escape the fact that they're going to come back around to you or your siblings or your children or your parents right this is what happens so it's a it's a mutual respect that we lack and i think we need to get back to that and once we do that and and get to the farming practices that you're talking about um we start to learn we start to understand nature right i mean there's lots of people that plant and, and harvest by the moon Yes, right? And there's a reason for this, right? And you vortex water and there's all kinds of amazing things that we can do, but, but we're not paying attention to that stuff anymore. Right. We are, we're too busy for that. And so, um, I think, 
I, you know, the fact that you're even aware of it, I think, shows that we are moving back toward that, which is a really good thing, right? We're right. starting to understand these things again. But, you know, you and I, uh, I can't speak for you, but I certainly <laughs> wasn't taught this by my parents, um, you know, and my parents were not taught this by their parents. So we, we've kind of lost the generational knowledge. Uh, and so we just need to work to get it back. No, I, was, I think that's happening. Yeah, you, you were talking about parents. And while it's interesting because my mom, uh, you know, both my parents were born in Jamaica back in the 30s. And uh, my mom, she was a registered nurse. So I grew up in in many ways surrounded by that paradigm, you know, that that ideal of modern medicine is going to solve all of our problems. And I remember, you know, like sitting in the doctor's office and reading the food pyramid, which I remember reading that thing back in the 70s, but they try to act like it only came out in the 80s. So <laughs> <laughs> were, 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 were you raised in Jamaica at all? Or no, I was I was born and raised oh, in New York. Dang. But my oh, but my parents, it's interesting because when I got my my uh, CN certified nutrition degree, uh, I would tell my mom stuff and she was like, yeah, you know, we used to do this stuff back in Jamaica. Like, and then I, I, I was going to say, yeah, yes. that would be really fascinating to hear your mother or her mother's or grand, you know, your grandparents to hear how they live, because I guarantee you, you know, it was so different. Oh, for sure. I, hey, I went to, I remember three years old being in Jamaica with, with my family and um, and everybody's sitting around the TV, and I'm like, why is everybody sitting on, around the TV? And they're like, we just got TV. Like Jamaica didn't yeah. <laughs> like they, it was like a brand new thing in Jamaica in the in the early 70s, apparently. Exactly. So you know, just um, just, like that's just a, a small snippet of how different their world was, yep. um, and you know how how far. I mean, I, I remember even going to Paris when I was nine, and uh, how for for and, and London for that matter. And how archaic much of the infrastructure seemed to me as a kid growing up in the Bronx. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, we're, well, and we're talking about like, you know, 1979 at this point. And they were so far what I would have at the time considered behind us technologically um, that it was just it totally blew my mind. Like, you, what do you mean you don't have that? What do you mean you you reuse bags at the supermarket? Come on, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, this and this is this is why I think we can't look, you know, when we talk about, you know, the keys to longevity and, and some people claiming that, oh, if you just drink wine at five o'clock and you eat mostly a vegetarian diet and you you have good community and all these things like, yeah, I mean, OK, like maybe some of that makes sense. But at the same time, like that's not going to be the thing that saves us because here's the deal. Um, and you hit on a really key point that I think we all need to be aware of. And I'm only 37. But I, when I was in high school, there was no cell phones. Mm -hmm. So I actually remember having to call people and be like, okay, let's meet up at this place at this time, which means that we were not texting each other and on Facebook communicating that way and Snapchatting each other. We were actually meeting up to hang out. Yeah. And this is what we're losing, mm -hmm. right? Um, look at Uber Eats, right? The fact that you can get on your phone and order food uh, to your door and not have to leave your computer because you need to work here. I mean, that's truly amazing and it's really cool and it's fascinating. But at the same time, food used to be a time and a place where we would we would either commune with family and or friends or the village or whatever, uh, but we'd slow down and yeah. we'd smell our food and we'd taste our food and we'd have a little wine, right? So it's the context through which we were eating and behaving, and that is not the same now. And look at our kids. They're radically different. So even a teenager, an 18-year-old today is drastically different than a teenager was when I was 18. Right. And that's only one, that's a one generation. Yeah. And things have changed so fast. And now I think about these kids that are four and five. I mean, 
I, I can't even imagine the society that, and culture that they're going to grow up in. So we can't pretend to think that we can look at vegetarian diets or, or plant-based diets and beans and wine and uh, you know, having a purpose and thinking that this is the key. We have to look at our environments. We have to look at our environments and our societies changed. And here's one of the things when I traveled around the world to these healthy societies, um, one of the things that my, my good friend and filmmaker noticed uh, when we were there is it really hit us in Costa Rica because that was the first place we went. We noticed that, you know, we were there for work. We were not there for vacation. We weren't there to just hang out and drink Mai Tais and chill on the beach. Right, right. <laughs> we, we were trying to find these hundred-year-olds and, like, using translators to figure out where they are. And, you know, I mean, it, we only had 10 days. So we had to, like, get this stuff done. Yeah. And yet, I felt like time had stopped. I felt mm-hmm. like it slowed down so much because the, the environment around me was basically behaving in that way. You would walk places. There was no rush to do things. There was no hurry. So you felt like time stopped. And then as soon as I got back to the U.S., I felt like I was late for something. Yeah. And nothing about my life had changed. I was still needing to check emails. I was still needing to, no matter where I was, I was behaving the same way. But because the environment was different, I felt the difference. And so we have to understand that we are a product of our environment. And this is why when people go to Hawaii, they feel like it's just kind of chill, right? So the island vibe, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All the time. Oh, you're on island time. That's that's profound. Mm -hmm. We dismiss it as something just, oh, whatever, but it's profound. People in Hawaii have a different mode. They have a different, uh, and I don't know if it's the same everywhere in Hawaii, but the places that I've been, you know, Kauai and, and Maui and these other things, the locals and the people that live there just have a different timing about them, right? And there's sort of a quality of time that, that still exists. And so I think we have to recognize that that is as much of a factor to our health and longevity as anything else. Um, so we, right now, or, and it's, and it's becoming easier in the U S and in our Western societies to be healthy, but even 10, 15 years ago, you were a real outlier. If you were making healthy decisions, you know, if you were trying to go to bed on time and you were eating organic foods and growing your foods, like you're kind of the weirdo, right? That's just, and even still, it's not, not typically the case where people are growing their own foods in most of the U S. Right. So in order to be optimally healthy in the u.s in order to follow let's say you understood exactly what it what it took to be healthy you are now operating outside your culture you're operating outside your society and therefore you're disassociating with your society which means you don't have the community right (laughs) you see what i'm saying so it actually might make more sense to have the community and make worse health decisions because Mm -hmm. you feel like you're a part of a community and you're involved and you're happy versus separating and isolating yourself and making really really smart health decisions so, wow, what a tricky thing to, to, to wrestle with. Right, right absolutely. Uh, and this is why when you look at other, these other cultures that, that smoke or that drink, first of all, they were smoking real tobaccos uh, that were organic, that didn't have pesticides, that didn't have chemicals added to them. So, that, so that's first step. They were smoking real things. Yeah. Secondly, they were drinking real alcohol that they grew themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in Greece, they were drinking organic, real wine that they were growing in their backyards. So everything was again, processed and, and done in a better way. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, they were drinking in communal settings and having fun and getting, I mean, one guy, was, <laughs> this is in Italy, uh, maybe it's Greece. I think, I think it was Greece, actually. He was telling me how he was walking, his friend was walking to work one day, and this was years ago, decades ago. And he was walking to work through the village and he saw one of his friends. And he sat down to have a cup of coffee with, with his friends instead of going to work. Because it's not like you have a boss to report to, right? right. It's like, oh, this is just the daily life. So, so he sat down with a couple of his friends, and then another friend came over, 
And he said by the end of the day, they had there was like a, a half dozen people gathered around, all hanging out, and they had drinking. They drank what I think he said seventy liters of wine. Whoa! <laughs> Be- between like a, a dozen friends or something like that. And these are the stories, right? So it's not, we can't look at that and say, okay, that's a healthy thing to do. But at the same time, we have to look at that and say, okay, well, their wine is organic. It was locally made. They were hanging out as friends. They had really, really good time and they were slowing down. So we can't look at that and say, that's the same thing as if I went and bought non-organic crappy wine that's full of sulfites and all kinds of nonsense. And I pounded it myself at home while I'm watching, you know, American Idol, right? Like totally different. Right. So- Again, we have to look at context. We cannot say, okay, because I'm drinking this garbage wine at five o'clock, therefore I'm going to live to be a hundred. It's not the same. Exactly. It's somebody forget now who it was. It's probably on one of my previous podcasts, but someone had, had said, um, you know, that Americans are really good technicians at, (laughs) at things that we're, we just want, we want the cheat sheet for life, you know, just just tell me what to do. I mean, how many times as a practitioner do you hear people say, just tell me what to eat and what not to eat? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it, it's it, and it's not exactly that simple, right? right? It, it's not, but at the same time, it almost is, right? So right. it's it, and, and here's what I we're just we want the wrong things. We want the quick answer. And the answer is eat organic food that grows near you according to the season. There's your answer. That's how you eat that's how your diet is, right? It's as simple as that. Mm-hmm. And people don't want that answer because it's inconvenient. And so we want the convenient answer, um, and that 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 we decide what's convenient and what's not. That's that's really what we, I think we look for. And uh, I can give you the truth, but most people don't like the truth. Um, they they want to decide what to believe, and mm-hmm. if it makes sense for them. In other words, if I tell you coffee's healthy, people are really quick to jump on that truth and say, "Oh no, yep. I heard it. I saw a study. Coffee's healthy, or right. wine's healthy. I heard. It. I saw it in a study." You know, but if if you have uh, a truth that you don't like, you know, it's like, well, I need more research. I need more. <laughs> right, right, right. Oh, oh, totally. I get that all the time. You know, like people, they'll follow me for years and they're like, oh my gosh, everything you said works. This is great. And I'll say, like one time I said to somebody and I wasn't trying to make the person become, you know, such an evangelist. This is my, this is my one like pet peeve, you know, thing when it comes to food is I, I don't eat almonds because mm. I understand what the almond has represented for our environment and for our bee populations. Yeah. So that's like my personal thing. So I mentioned this to someone in my group and someone who, you know, she had fibromyalgia and she had all these problems. And she's like, Adrian, it took me two years to follow you. And when I finally did, I started to see results in like two weeks. All right. So then, um, so I mentioned the thing about the almond. She's like, yeah, I got to look that up. <laughs> I'm not sure. Well, and 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 I totally agree with you on that. By the way, I mean they suck up so much water, and they're it's it's a really destructive uh, monocrop that we've created. Yes. Um, but but here's the let's go again. Let's go back to an evolutionary biology framework. Mm-hmm. If you were were trotting around a local area, let's say you were in California where almonds might grow, would you go climb a tree or or pick all, you know the, the the nuts off the ground and uh, pick up a hundred of them, uh, crack them all open, compile them? Uh, go heat them up in the sun and then consume 150 almonds or right. press them into an almond milk. I mean, that's insanity. Exactly. Right? No, you would not do that. So it, the, the the way that we're consuming almonds and almond milk has no historical basis in exactly. reality. Mm-hmm. So we have no reason to think that that would be a good thing. You know, um, you know, and this is a, 
by the way, I mean, this is how ignorant we all are. I was in Costa Rica and I saw my first cashew tree. <laughs> okay. And I would, I consider myself fairly cultured. Like I've been all around the world uh, and I've been fortunate enough. I'm very curious. So I, 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 I make it a point to try to discover things, right? That's my first cashew tree I saw. And I was blown that away. That was my first cashew tree too. <laughs> <laughs> I was blown away, right? It's like a, you have a fruit and then you have this little cashew nut that grows on the bottom of that fruit. And I felt, I was like, wow. So we take the fruit, we discard it and we take that little nut yeah. You know, and there's probably, I don't know, 150 on a whole tree. You know, if it's a well-producing tree, they get 150 of these fruits, which is 150 nuts. I, I've eaten 150 cashews in one sitting. Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> you know, I'm like, I, that means I ate a whole damn tree of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the people in Costa Rica, they told me that they would eat, they would have cashew, uh, cashew fruit juice. They would have cashew fruits. Mm. So they would eat the cashew fruits and they would have cashew fruit juice. And they said, oh, it's amazing. I'm like, wow. So what about the nuts? I'm like, oh yeah, well, whatever. But you know, we had the cashew fruit. That's so hilarious. We, we, we've taken everything out of context and, and we, we don't know how to operate in the real world because we have industrialization and we have farming practices that are not normal and we have refrigeration and transport and all these things. So we have to go back and take an evolutionary look at things and reset our idea of what we think it means. And and ask ourselves, would any population in the past ever have done this in all likelihood? You know, who would have created hemp milk or coconut milk right. or cashew milk or almond milk or rice milk? You know, probably not a lot of populations, if any. Right. So if they're not doing that, then why would we think that that's a good thing? And yet the irony is, is that when we look at something like, you know, cow milk or goat milk or sheep milk or camel milk. Or right. Oh, we're milk. not supposed to consume that. Come on. Right. Right. But yet there's <laughs> massive historical context for that. Absolutely. So, and again, I'm not saying that we should. Well, I'm not saying that, that we should um, accept all milks um, because they're, we've, we, again, we've, we've really screwed that up. You know, the milk that yes. we produce now is very different. It's pasteurized. It's all kinds of problems with it. So again, every, it's all about the quality. And I think there are large parts of the population that actually don't do well with with dairy milk, you know, yeah. cow milk, um, and that's okay. And so it's not it's not a matter of me saying cow milk's good, therefore you shouldn't be drinking it. Uh, and it's not also not to say that we're the only species that drinks another species' milk. I mean, this is ridiculous. You know, um, doesn't matter. We have we are adaptive, and we can eat damn near anything. Yeah. So uh, that's the first thing. And you know, again, we have to look at. What is the reality? And the reality is, is that there's been lots of populations that eat, that drink all kinds of different milks. And um, I think we just have to accept the fact that there are all kinds of cultures that do all kinds of different things, and it's okay. There's no bad. There's no good. There is just what is working for me right now. And does this have a historical context? Does it have? Is it aligned with how nature operates? And if so, we're on a good track. You know, then we can sort of make these nuanced decisions. But buying, you know, an almond milk in a box from a store and thinking that that's a better thing than drinking organic raw sheep milk doesn't make a whole lot of sense on any level. So yeah. Well, I questions. I've got a, a goat that I milk every afternoon and um, the cats come around every t- every afternoon <laughs> some of that milk because i you know you squirt off the first one just to make sure there's no mastitis or anything going funky with the milk and then i put it in the bowl and they come around like they even before it gets there they know they see me walk near the stand and they're like yeah yeah. they're like totally all over it Um, so we're not the only we're not the only mammal that likes to consume milk right of course not you know and and why do we 
why do we why why do we do cheese right yeah. well cheese is a fermented product that we can carry around with us right that's why we do bread bread is the same way we can yes. carry bread miles with us without it going bad for weeks right right I, there's not a lot of foods that we can do that with so Humans are adaptive, and we created ways to feed ourselves if we were traveling great distances or we, we were going through periods without food. This is where fermented cabbage came from. This is yes. where you know, all the fermented foods, all the, the, the meat products that were preserved with sea salt and drying out in the sun. You know, we've created pickles, you know, all these amazing, cool ways to preserve food through times of famine, through times of uh, travel. Uh, and this is where milk comes into play, too, because we can take our goat with us and continue to, to drink milk as we travel across you know, distances. So there's reasons that we have these things. And if, if it doesn't work for you right now, that's okay too. So right. again, I think we have to stop blaming everything. Stop blaming the food. Stop blaming each other. Uh, and just chill out uh, and, and go back to eating what works for us. But at the end of the day, I think where we can unequivocally say that we should focus is on tons of Fruits and vegetables and plant matter. Right. Uh, taro root, fantastic. Plantains, bananas, you know, fruits and vegetables of all kinds. Uh, white potatoes, sweet potatoes, uh, sunchokes, uh, you know, carrots and parsnips, and I mean, on and on and on. Right. These are yeah. all really healthy foods that feed our microbiota, and that's really what we should be focusing on: is how do we feed the microbiota within us that carries out ninety percent of our function? Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and a lot of the foods that you mentioned are also prebiotic. <laughs> so, and that's the point, right? You know, so they're, they're feeding the microbiome. Right. And it goes back to your soil example, right? Let's not, you don't look at the soil, okay, this one needs more nitrogen, this one needs more potassium, you know, this type of thing. That's a, that's a silly way of looking at soil science. Right. Instead, how do we create this ecosystem in the soil that has the right uh, pH, that has the right uh, organisms that can coexist together and if we do that, then the plant that grows out of the soil is healthy. It's the same thing with the human. How do we create a healthy microbial community within us? And that will then keep us healthy as the human. Right. And, you know, what a lot of people don't realize uh, is that the roots of a plant is actually the mouth. Mm -hmm. So if you think about, you know, cultivating these, these microorganisms in the soil, you're feeding that directly into the mouth of the plant. Um, not only do the plants love it, but all of my animals will roll around whenever I open a pile of the stuff because I, I make it and it heats up. Like if you don't turn it, it will like turn to ammonia. It's so potent and it's so rapid acting um, that the animals, they just come and they just bathe in it. They roll right. around. The chickens are eating it. Like, I mean, it's, it's nuts to, to watch their instincts take over. Right. And, and when you look at anything that's going to grow in the soil, whether it be a seed or, yes. or a root, um, they, these components of the plant have to develop very strong compounds to protect them against uh, parasites and, yes. and uh, you know, bacteria and mold and all these things, right? So in order to protect themselves against these pathogens, they have to produce these plant compounds. Well, these, you can call it the, the plant's immune system, right? That's yeah. a good way to think about it, right? So in garlic, that's the allicin, right? That's the, mm -hmm. the bit, the, that, that, that spice that garlic provides. That's the, that's the immune system of garlic, right? Of the garlic bulb. And so if we think about the immune system of the plant, and usually it's in the in form of colors or phytochemicals or these type of things, that immune system of the plant, when we eat it, that has genetic information that that confers that knowledge 
to our microbiota. So if we have parasites or we've got an overgrowth of yeast or fungus or various bacterial species within us, that plant's immune system will then help us out and our internal microbiota to come back into balance. And it will impart that genetic information to our microbiota. So literally, we are stealing the plant's immune system by, by, by ingesting it yeah. and imparting that wisdom or that knowledge into our bodies. Mm-hmm. This is a beautiful system. Right. But when you use glyphosate and you use these pesticides and these herbicides and these fungicides that are killing the immune system of the plant, because the immune system of the plant doesn't have to develop, right? because, you're, because the, these herbicides and fungicides are killing all the organisms, the pests. Yes. In the soil, so if the, there's no pest, the, the plant doesn't need an immune system, mm-hmm. right? So, so the immune system of the plant becomes weak, which means when we eat that plant, we don't get the, the information because it's not there. So this is the problem. So this is why the colors and the phytochemicals are so important for us because they act as actual stressors to our body, and our body says, "Ooh, that's a chemical plant chemical stressor." Therefore, we need to upregulate this gene, or we need to turn on this, or we need to do that. So it's this, it's this little hormetic stress, this plant chemical hormesis that, that happens, and that's part of where we get our benefits. Mm-hmm. So we have to go back to this. you know. So when you have somebody telling you that there's, there's a plant toxin that you need to avoid, I call BS on that. Right. Everything is a plant toxin. Exactly. Every, I, every, everything that passes your lips and really in the environment in general, it has a, a plus and a minus. So I really love the fact that before you said it's not about good and what's bad. It's just things just are sometimes. We don't, <laughs> we don't well, have to put that value judgment on it, right? No, and, and we've learned, our, this is the thing. Uh, our bi- So the plants in their environment have learned to exist and develop mechanisms to exist in that environment, right? An apple, for example, or an orange, uh, an orange has figured out a way to live in that environment that such that it won't get disease, it won't get uh, consumed by pests. So it's figured out which molecules to produce, which phytochemicals and which acids and all these things and colors to produce such that it can survive in that environment. So in other words, life is always adapting to fit the environment. Same thing with humans uh, and, and other animal species. They've, we've figured out ways to coexist with these plant toxins. Right. I mean, if you look at onion, right, I mean, this, there's tons of plant toxins in onion or, or garlic or whatever. Um, those are really strong plant toxins, you know, uh, ginger root. Right. I mean, ginger is really strong or wasabi. Right. I mean, these are really strong chemical compounds that are within foods that we can taste. Yeah. And yet our microorganisms that are within us and our mitochondria and our DNA have experienced these long enough throughout evolutionary history that we've learned how to adapt to them and with them to coexist. So this is how we coexist with these things, is that our species and our microbiota have been exposed to these things over so many years that we now understand how to live with them and in harmony with them. So there are plants out there that will kill us, you know, if, if we eat them raw or whatever. Yeah. So what that shows us is that we have not developed the ability to adapt to those yet. Mm-hmm. Now, the way that the biology works and human evolution works and all sort of evolutionary biology works is that it's just an adaptive evolution. That's all it is. So over time, we would adapt. Yeah. Um, and I actually somewhat think that even all these toxins in our, our environment, given enough time, our species will adapt to them. Right. Whether it's a good thing or not, I don't know. Um, you know, one example of this is hemochromatosis. Right, we we consider this a disease, you know, of excess iron storage. Right. Uh, but but really, 
hemochromatosis was a genetic adaptation that allowed people to survive the plague. Yes. So what a cool thing, right? Our, 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 immune, or our uh, genome adapts to survive plagues. It's like, right. holy well, that's malaria as well. So, exactly. or, or, and, uh, sorry, and uh, sickle cell anemia. Yeah, absolutely. And, you this know, is, and this is the very, exactly, the African population is very sort of well known for this, right? This elevated disease state that we call sickle cell anemia. No, they're really good at adapting to the environment that they were in. Right. And, and, and this is sort of the, the trade-off, if you want to call it that. Mm-hmm. But it's not a trade-off. It's more of just an adaptation. And so we see this with actually the African population is really cool right now. When you look at a lot of these, what we would call diseases, these infectious diseases, there's people, you know, and, and HIV is swept through Africa. Um, and yet there's plenty of people in Africa that live very healthy with HIV. Right. In other words, not a single problem with, with them. So we really don't understand these things very well um, in modern science. Um, the same thing in Costa Rica. They, they have dengue fever, right, which is yes. an infectious disease. They take a little bit of papaya leaf tea for a couple of days and they're fine. Wow. Uh, so uh, this is, this is, we, we really have to understand that we are adaptive. We are supposed to integrate with our environment. And when we do that, then we coexist very, very nicely with the environment. Mm-hmm. But when we start to deviate and think that we can control nature and we can, um, you know, manipulate nature, that's where we start getting in trouble. Yes. And we try to find science and then our complex solutions, we get more complexity and then it just on and on and on we go. So the reality is, is let's simplify. Let's get in touch with nature. Let's stop writing all these books. Uh, <laughs> diet, hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> there's only one book that's needed on diet and that, and, and, and it should be one chapter and it should be all about eating real food that grows in your environment in uh, certain quantities at certain times a day that makes sense, and that's it. Period. This concludes part one of our interview with Jason Prawl of the Human Longevity Project. Come back next week for part two of the interview, where Jason tells us about the lifestyle and mindset of the world's oldest inhabitants. That's next week on the Nutrition Heretic Podcast. To sign up to watch the Human Longevity Project for free, go to nutritionheretic.com slash longlife. And don't forget to join us for the Frenching Your Food Telesummit at frenching.nutritionheretic.com while it's still free. The Nutrition Heretic Podcast is a production of Savor the Journey, LLC. Our audio editor is Nikola Popovich. Our podcast manager is Crystal McLean. And our operations manager is Michelle Med. I'm your host, Adrian Hugh the Nutrition Heretic. You can find us at the new and improved nutritionheretic.com where you can download the Nutrition Heretic's free shit list of seven health foods to avoid like the plague. You can also listen to previous episodes at nutritionheretic.com forward slash podcast. Be sure to like us on social media for updates. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash nutritionheretic and on Twitter at NutriHeretic. Contact us with show ideas, questions, or if you want to be a guest. And don't forget to rate our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher.
Welcome back to the second part of our interview with Jason Prawl of the Human Longevity Project on the Nutrition Heretic Podcast. The last time, Jason shared the dietary wisdom we can glean from the world's oldest inhabitants. Today, he'll tell us about the meaning of life for people living in the blue zones and the most surprising takeaways from his film. You can go to watch his film for free starting May 7th at nutritionheretic.com slash longlife. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. If you're still confused about what to eat and not getting the results you thought you'd get by going organic, go to nutritionheretic.com and download the shit list of seven health foods to avoid like the plague for free. The shit list details what health food companies want you to believe about the crap they peddle and why the real foods they're meant to replace are far better. Stop letting big health food dump all over you and download the shit list today. Fat is bad for you. I just pop a pill and I'm fine. Meat is murder. (laughs) It's time for bad food punishment. It's time for real nourishment. It's time for the nutrition heretic. The following program is provided as information only and may not be construed as medical or health advice. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure any disease. No action or inaction should be taken solely on the basis of the information provided here. Please consult with a licensed healthcare professional or doctor on any matter relating to your health and well-being. the past year I have been teaching uh, cooking at my kids school and I've had you know some parents kind of like in my ear like oh well you know you know instead of using you know the organic bread or what have you you could use broccoli or blah 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 and I'm not saying that that's bad but right now like basically everybody was going for like the vegan option the vegetable option the you know so on but this is the thing is we have we have enough trouble just introducing children to real food. Yeah. I just want to cross that hurdle first. (laughs) You know, know, and we've definitely done salads, you know, but I've shown them things like how to make marshmallows from scratch, you know, like how does that happen? (laughs) How How to make, um, uh, what did we do? Uh, we, I even showed them how to make tortillas from scratch. You know, we, we pressed mm, them cool. and all that kind of stuff. You know, we took uh, somebody donated beef bones. I made beef broth. We made a pumpkin soup with that. And then the the meat, we took it off and we made uh, a homemade teriyaki sauce with local honey. And and we, um, you know, made a, what they call a musubi, which is uh, essentially a, a, a meat sushi roll. <laughs> so mm-hmm. we did a, a beef teriyaki musubi. Uh, we've done, you know, just all these different, we, I, the kids didn't even know what a sloppy Joe was. I was like, how do you not know what a sloppy Joe is? <laughs> that might <laughs> so, be a good thing. <laughs> but, you know, we, but I showed them and, and they were like, wow. And we had like a local organic sourdough bun to put it on. So, yeah, I, I, I agree that our, our biggest hurdle right now in America, particularly, is just identifying what is a food that is was naturally fished or hunted or <laughs> otherwise gathered right, by our ancestors right. uh, because so many people are so removed there it makes it easier for them to adopt 
these um, these different, uh, let's just, for lack of a better description, radical diets um, that are, are maybe extreme diets that are very one-sided and, you know, they have to all go down this rabbit hole of, of a particular philosophy, you know, we're, we're kind of lo- losing sight of the objectives, which at the end of the day, is this something that my ancestors would have consumed? Yeah, and I think the easiest way to, to think about this is to shift the whole idea in the framework is to say, how do I feed my microbiota? Yeah. That's it. That's the goal. And and you do that through plant fibers mostly and real organic meat. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of the basis of it. Um, you know, even things like butter, you know, butter mm-hmm. was demonized for a long time and that was a that was wrong to do that because right. butter, you know, real organic raw butter is very healthy. Uh, if the cow is healthy and it's, you know, and it's grown or raised in a natural way. But now you have these people saying, okay, well, butter's healthy now, so I'm going to eat a stick of butter. Yeah. Well, that's not healthy either because, you know, we have to understand that that's going to cause dysbiosis and disruption in the gut and the, and the microbiota. So if we just step back for a second and say, how do I feed my microbiota? And you want to do that through a variety of plant foods, real organic, you know, some of them raw, some of them cooked. Um, you know, then this whole carb notion goes out the window because carbs all of a sudden are really healthy because they're feeding microbiota. Right. Um, vegetables and fruits are both back in the game. Fruits are fantastic for the microbiota. Um, you know, consuming a little bit of meat is great, but too much and going to this sort of weird, odd paleo diet where you're eating nothing but bacon all day is uh, <laughs> doesn't, doesn't make any sense. Again. So it just frames the whole discussion, I think, in a little bit more of a, a normal light. And so that's really where I'd like people to start thinking about and, and, and making their decisions. Okay, is this thing going to feed my microbiota or is it going to harm the microbiota? And right. if it's processed, contains chemicals, uh, you know, these type of things, then you should, uh, you should know that that's probably going to harm the microbiota. If it's organic, if it's real, if it's whole, you know, um, and if it's mostly a plant-based thing, with a little bit of meat and a little bit of fats here and there, then that's probably where you want to stay. And adjusting accordingly based on how you feel uh, is really the way to go. And, the, and one of the best things you can do is just check your stool, right? So there's something called the Bristol stool chart. And yes. um, you know when you're pooping good, right? You know when you're pooping bad, right? Is, is it runny? Is it constipated? Is it, you know, what is it? And you can tell. I mean, this isn't rocket surgery, right? Um, uh, of course, and, you have to realize that some doctors are telling people this is totally normal. They're oh, saying that this and, is this is where they decide that you're an individual. Like, oh, you haven't pooped in a week. That's just you. Yeah, right, <laughs> it's, it's right. perfectly normal for you. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's well. See, and that's the thing. It's common. It's just not normal. Right. right. We should exactly. we should be pooping normal. Uh, and and that's that's where the Bristol stool chart can come into play. But also, how do you feel? You know, do you feel lethargic? Do you are you you know cloudy? Or, you know, how do you feel? Um, so so going back to that, really making decisions based on on that stuff, but kind of going to your kid your kid point, um, I think one of the coolest things you can do as a parent, especially if you have younger children, is to um, just plant some food with your children in your backyard or in a, like I said in a flower pot or in a whiskey barrel or whatever, and give them some carrot seeds or you know what have you, and w- let them just plant those things and water them and care for them. And then as they sprout, your kids are going to go, oh, wow, that's mine. You know, that's my, those are my carrots. And then they're going to see them grow bigger. And then they're going to understand how much to water them and how often to water them. And they're going to have this invested emotion into this, this food now. And then the, the, your, your child may not may hate carrots. But now when they see them, that they grew that, 
and they know how long that took. All of a sudden, there's a different relationship there. Yeah. And this is how I think we can get kids back into eating healthy and eating normal because they understand how, and have a different relationship with food. When they pull something out of a freezer in a package, pop it in a microwave, I mean, that's like comparing apples to pencils. I mean, yeah. it's just not even the same thing, right? I mean, you can't uh, – a hot pocket out of a freezer into a microwave is not even close to you know, growing a, a, a cucumber off a vine in your backyard. Sure. Uh, it's so different. So, so again, and, and why would a child know the difference? They have to be taught this stuff, right? Mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. this is our job as adults, as, as as parents, as teachers, as educators, as as a society, to teach our kids. And we failed to do that. You know, my parents' generation failed to do that. My parents, uh, their parents' generation, f failed to do it as well. And we are continuing to fail uh, to to a large degree. So we have to, it's incumbent upon us as adults to teach the younger generations how to live in harmony with nature. And as we do this, then things can change. It's not good enough to, to do it ourselves and, and not share it with the rest of the world, right? So this is why your podcast, you know, and these things are so important because we need to share this information and bring back this understanding. Um, and as we do that, things will radically shift so fast. It's, it's almost laughable, right? I mean, this is the tipping point idea that you just need a certain small percentage of the population, you know, 3%, and, and the tide starts to turn. Yes. So I think we're in that stage of sort of early adoption, and, uh, and it, it's going to change. I'm confident, um, but uh, we, we still have a long way to go, so we need to keep pushing. Right. Um, you know, the, the, the Human Longevity Project is actually, there's so much overlap between that and the telesummit that I just put on called Frenching Your Food, which is about the how the French eat, right? Because we yeah. always hear the same kind of thing. Oh, they just drink red wine. Okay, yeah, you know, that, that, that miraculously just balances out all the foie gras and, <laughs> you know, pâtés and cheese, right? So, but, uh, you know, the, the, the crux of it is that we, you know, yeah, this, this over, overly simplified diet that we're told that the French follow. Uh, but I've lived in France. Most of my friends are French. You know, I've always had you know, very close relations with people from France. And they were always telling me things that were very different from this, you know, very calorie counting, low fat, uh, you know, low carb, low this, low that diet philosophy that we get bogged down with and 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 by the way none of my french friends love to exercise <laughs> they all yeah. they all hate exercise they'll walk but they're like sweat and like what are you crazy like i, I don't like it well but, none, none of the places that we went when in these longevity areas they didn't none of them exercised right they worked they walked but they yep. didn't exercise right they garden they hike maybe you know it's, it's, it's yeah they, they do hard work you know but they don't exercise exactly and um and so this is what my my french friends are are telling me what do you think um when people watch your film what do you think they will come away with as one of the more or maybe a few of the more surprising features of longevity of the you know the some of the the contributors that you've identified towards longevity yeah, well, I think this is the first thing, um, even though it's called the Human Longevity Project, in the first episode, we actually sort of debunked this idea of longevity as a, as a quality or as a, as, a, as a metric we should care about. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, because who cares if you live to 150? If you hate yourself, you're poisoning the planet, you can't even walk. Right. Right? Uh, exactly. You can't think. That's stupid. Uh, so what we're all after is a quality of life and happiness, really. That's kind of what we're after. And so, um, so we sort of get into the philosophy of longevity. So I think hopefully we catch people off guard there and set the stage a little bit in terms of what we should be really focused on, which is 
um, you know, being happy. And, uh, and if we do that, then, then living a big or a good life can be much more impactful than living a long life just, just for the number of years. But I think, you know, we, we try to provide a, a fundamental foundational framework for everybody um, to understand what health is, where it comes from, that it's innate. It's already built within you. You know, you don't have to go chase it or buy it or learn it. It's already there. You know, a seed contains the blueprint for the tree. It doesn't have to be coached. It doesn't have to pick up tools and skill sets. It just it needs the environment and it just does its thing. So it's the same thing with us. It's already built within us. We just have to let it go. We have to let let that get out of the way to some degree. And so um, we, we get back to the fundamentals and we talk about things like circadian biology. Uh, and m- many people may not have heard that term, but chronobiology or circadian rhythm. You know, I mean, there was a Nobel Prize awarded for this in 2017 for the study of circadian biology. The fact that our body runs on rhythms. So we get into that and understand the importance of that, and how to how to optimize that. And this is easy stuff. You know, it's just you, most of us aren't taught this. And so, um, you know, we get into that. It's a pretty big one. Um, you know, purpose and connection and community, uh, a very fundamental one. Slowing down, um, you know, uh, electromagnetic fields. Uh, it's a very uh, controversial one right now. But, um, you know, it's very clear that nobody prior to, you know, basically 1950 ever saw foreign electromagnetic fields, mm-hmm. uh, let alone in the, in the, in the, the sort of density and the, in the uh, intensity that we see now with cell phones and Wi-Fi and Bluetooth. So we have to explore that and where that's going. Um, I think people will be very, you know, we cover toxins, you know, things like chemicals and, and pesticides and metals and these things, which I think many people are aware of now, but we, we get into the, the impacts there and how ubiquitous um, from a health perspective those are. Um, you know, we break down diet. You know, we, that's a big one. We talk about diet and how these people all around the world eat all kinds of different foods, including meats and cheeses and breads and uh, you know all these type of things. So we have to we have to debunk a lot of that. Um, childbirthing. I think this is what's often forgotten mm, in yeah. longevity space. People start looking at longevity from the age of thirty on. I would argue that the most important thing for longevity and optimal health happens between preconception and twenty years old. Yep. This is when childhood trauma occurs. You mm-hmm. know. Ages of mostly zero and five or so. Um, this is where we see, you know, breastfeeding and natural birthing and the microbiota starting to, to be developed. And uh, this is important. So the fact that we're overlooking this um, is sort of laughable when it comes to longevity. So these are the things that we look at. We look at preconception to to elderly care, and we look at the whole spectrum and try to figure out all these lifestyle factors. And the cool thing is, is it really, when we set out to make this film, I wanted it to make it empowering and I wanted to make it practical. So we wanted to give people practical takeaways and we wanted to empower them so that they could take back their own health and they don't need special doctors and you know, even people like you and me, right. right? We're just, we're just here as a voice, as an educator, as somebody, you know, people pointing in the right direction, but no, look, I work with a lot of people. I don't heal anybody, you know, mm-hmm. their body heals. Yes. This is what, this is the truth. And, we are just guides, you know, hoping to sort of point people in the right direction and be there for support and facilitate the, 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 the healing. But the healing takes place at the, at the level of the body. So this is the reality. And so that, that was really the goal, um, to empower people to uh, get, break it down to the fundamentals, to get into some of the deep science. So if you're a science nerd, um, we explain a lot of this stuff and it gets pretty geeky. But the takeaway is very simple. You know, um, for, for example, circadian biology, right? You may not have heard this term or maybe you have. Simple things, going outside in the morning, getting sun in your eyes and on your skin, and avoiding artificial fake light at night. Mm-hmm. So you, you do those two things, and your 
circadian rhythm or your biological rhythms will, will become reset. You know, it's very simple. Now, we can explain, like I said, the 2017 Nobel Prize was awarded for chronobiology. So it's very, very complex science. So we can go deep on that. But the takeaway is very simple. So uh, I think we just need to explain how powerful a lot of the simple things are. And when we do that, all of a sudden, we start to place more emphasis on the importance of them. I was just going to say that marketing has has so hijacked <laughs> our... Oh, yeah. our um belief in the strength of the, the human body and the resilience of the human body. Uh, and, uh, and, and really, it's the mind, right? The right. mind literally controls the body. But, but I, would, I would 100% agree with you, with, you, with your premise, which is that the body is miraculous. Yes. And, and if, we, if we allow the mind to allow the body to do what it can do, it's like, I mean, this is where spontaneous healing actually happens. And we know this because the placebo effect is very, very real. And it's been studied at nauseum. <laughs> the, the, the entire pharmaceutical industry is built on that, right? <laughs> so. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. so this is the power that you hold. But, you know, if, and if you don't want to accept it, that's okay. You know, there's no judgment. But if you want it, it's there. And that's our goal is to try to promote it. Right, right, right. Yeah, and again, there are so many par parallels because we do talk a little bit about like sleep patterns, for example, during the summit. You know, we're talking about these things that people don't think of when they think of like, I want to lose some weight. Well, get to bed on time. You know, like this is the most know, powerful you, thing you can do. Right, one of the most powerful things. You know, and so there's we're, we're again we we become technicians of things without fully uh, grasping just the the many different areas involved in achieving this. Now, yep. in, in the case of your film, how, like, how, do, how do you help people get to where they want, or, or you know, plant, you're planting these seeds, let's say, but without getting them totally neurotic and turning this into the new religion? Well, it's, it's really simple, honestly. Um, and and we've, we've had a, a number of people watch this film so far, and the, the feedback's been truly amazing. Um, like, it's sort of to the point where it's very humbling. You know, when you make something like this, you're not sure how people are going to respond. Yeah. It, you know, did we make it too scientific? Is it easy to understand? Are people going to reject this? Do they, whatever, you know, and you don't know. And it's been overwhelming. Um, and people have, have really taken it in and saying, you know what, this makes so much sense. Finally, I feel like I have the understanding. Mm -hmm. And and I think it just empowers people. I think for so long, our industry in the health field has done so much disservice in terms of disempowering people. You need to buy my book in order to be healthy. You need to avoid sugars in order to be healthy. You need to avoid fats. We're basically disempowering people mm -hmm. with all these crazy micro messages. And really, our goal is to say, all that. And I can prove it because there's all these people around the world and we're talking to them. So the, our film includes the interviews from these 96-year-olds and 104-year-olds, and they're telling you their lifestyle. They're telling you what, how they grew up. They're telling you this stuff. And so when you have a 104-year-old tell you something like, you know, uh, the most powerful thing I can tell you for your health is to hold no grudges and maintain good relationships with those around you, and then you have a researcher say the same thing, I'm sorry, if you don't want to listen to that, that's okay, but like, <laughs> that's pretty powerful, you know? To, to, right. to hear somebody's experienced it, and, and multiple people said that, by the way, multiple centenarians said that, you know, people in their 90s and yeah. 100s said that relationships were the most powerful thing. And then you have research now showing, showing social genomics is the thing, that having no friends is more of a detriment to your health than smoking. Mm -hmm. We have research now. Yeah. So, you know, all of a sudden, it, it's not, it's not, this isn't hard. So uh, w the takeaway is, okay, I need to forgive people. 
I need to have compassion for people. I need to let go of bad relationships. I need to foster good relationships. I just change my focus. That's going to add 12 years to my life or whatever. That's easy, yeah. right? So this isn't hard stuff. We just have to realize what's important again. So right. I think this is this is the point is to to show people what's important. Right, it's right. not it's not important to go vegan and think that you, all your problems are going to be solved. The important thing is okay, fix your relationships, get to mm-hmm. bed on time, go outside, touch the earth, slow down, simplify, and all of a sudden these are very doable things. Right, right. right. This is not you know you don't have to pay millions of dollars for this. You don't have to, you don't have to live anywhere special. You just have to implement the lifestyle things. Fix your mindset, you know, fix your, your emotional states, you know, focus. I don't say fix it like it's easy, but right. at least at least change your focus. And if we can change our focus to the things that actually matter, then all of a sudden this mystery of health doesn't have to be such a, you know, enigma. It can be very, very simple. Right. I, I don't know if you've read a book called In Praise of Slowness, um, but it's... I don't, I haven't. It's, uh, I forget the name, Carlos something wrote the book, uh, but uh, he went to several countries around the world, Japan, Italy, so on. He went to like slow cities and, you know, tantric sex and like all of these different ways that people are trying to slow down in their mm-hmm. lives. And, um, you know, it was just really what you're saying is reminding me of that because at its foundation what we're seeing what he's talking about is like life has just gotten too freaking fast you know and there's like kids in japan committing suicide because they don't get the right grades you know like we're we're putting so much stress on ourselves in modern life and so he's just talking about like look at all these different ways like everyone on the planet is trying to slow life down again yeah and and it actually gets this is what we talk about in the first episode in the philosophy of longevity which is i'm 37 if my focus is on making it to 120, I'm doing it wrong. Right. My focus should be on how do I extract the most joy and take advantage of right now? Yeah. Not next week, not tomorrow, not when I'm 50, not when I'm 120. How do I enjoy today? Mm-hmm. This is what these people are doing. They're not thinking about, when, you know, when I talked to a 105-year-old, at 46, he was not thinking, how do I make it to 105? Right. He was simply operating in his daily environment and enjoying as much as he can. I mean, this is the, the recipe is the, the same. The religious texts, the spiritual texts, these people in, in shamanistic cultures and all around the world have been saying the same thing for a long time. We just don't listen. It's, it's <laughs> just, the power of now. <laughs> exactly. Just stop with the nonsense and just enjoy now, right? And, I, and I, I'm not saying that because I've mastered this, this understanding of this technique, but, but at least the awareness starts to come. You know, and if we would build awareness around how do I enjoy now, then who cares about you know how old I get? Um, that's not the point, you know. Because if you if you live to 120 and you never enjoyed a day, I mean, I don't understand that. I, you know, it doesn't make any sense. So the point of life is not to live a long time. The point of life is not to even be happy, right? Um, I think we we have to understand that the point of life is to. And I guess this is where I would impart my my opinion, <laughs> because yeah. the point of life is a very big discussion. But I think it's to experience, pure and simple, mm-hmm. to experience. Um, and that's all I, I can say. You know, uh, you decide your happiness. I think it's, you know, the Buddha and the Buddhist tradition would say that their suffering exists everywhere and all the time. Yeah. This is reality. Suffering is a reality. But... Um, so to, to, to think that we can go through life without suffering, I think, is probably a little ignorant. But I think if we just accept the experience, 
um, then we can really step into what life is about. And that, in my opinion, comes down to actually paying attention and being mindful of the experience. Mm. So when you're, you know, when, when you break up with somebody and your heart is broken or somebody passes away and your heart is broken, are you running from that feeling, you know, because you don't like it? Or are you sitting within it and go, whoa, you know, this is really heavy. I feel really, I feel a certain way, right? And, and when something amazing happens, you know, uh, you're, you're laying next to your loved one in bed in the morning and you're, you're, you're actually there and you're saying how lucky you are. You know, this is amazing. This is, all, this is what I've always wanted. Yeah. You know, this type of thing, you know, so I think it's just a matter of, or when you're eating that cupcake where that's full of gluten and sugar and processed crap and you're eating it and you're going, man, this is really tasty. I really do enjoy this cupcake and that's yeah. okay. Right. right. It's a different thing than going, oh my God, I know I shouldn't be eating this cupcake. This is full of gluten. And oh man, it's going to go straight to my hips and I shouldn't be doing this. I really, sh- I, so I told myself I wasn't going to do this. I hate this. Exactly. Right. <laughs> very, very different and, then, and then you eat six. <laughs> And then you then you just go from down like it like you know you're having sex and with somebody yourself. in the back alley right you, just... <laughs> and you hit yourself and you go to the gym and you punish yourself yeah. because you know you need to work that very very different experience than sitting down going wow this this process hostess cupcake actually is really good and I'm really enjoying this so yeah. that's the difference right? right and so you get out of this whole what's right and what's wrong and you just start to experience and enjoy the experience and I think that's really the key of this whole thing. Right. Absolutely. I, again, so many parallels between the, between our, both of our, you know, where we're coming from, um, uh, with regards to this. Now, what is, uh, I think this is going to be my last question, but I have a habit of saying that and then asking like six (laughs) more, um, because we're going to head towards two hours soon. Uh, (laughs) so what would you say are some of the steps, uh, that people who don't, have a community and don't have the loved one you know how can they start to foster that because i think that is in our modern world with i I used to live in new jersey which is notorious for you know just that suburban sprawl and i don't Mm. even know who the my neighbors were i lived there i knew one family that lived behind me and i hardly saw them yeah. I was like totally a fish out of water. I moved to Hawaii. I'm in this small town in the, not tiny, but you know, fairly small town in the, in the North of the Island. And, um, I feel like I'm finally part of something I haven't had since. I mean, I I'll put it this way, growing up in the Bronx, I, yeah. I felt more connected to my neighbors than I ever did in New Jersey. Yep. And yep. that's because in, you know, in cities, you know, especially back in the seventies, we had like, you know, block parties and, you know, we played with the kids next door and there was a lot of that going on. We had sidewalks for crying out loud. We didn't have that in New Jersey. Well, so, and, and, and did you grow up in a poor environment, like a more rough, poor? Yeah. Not poor like, city? not like South Bronx, <laughs> you know, not, no, <laughs> not like, not like they want to make a movie out of it kind of Bronx, but yeah. yeah, but it was definitely not, you know, we weren't. We weren't living high on the hog. Well, and I, and I say that because I kind of grew up in sort of a poor environment. Right? Right. Um, and so what I noticed in that environment was that sort of because we were, we were suffering, you know, we weren't like, you know, I mean, but we were poor, you yes, know, and, exactly. uh, and yet I remember playing with lots of neighborhood kids and there was lots of, you know, there's more community in that sort of setting. And I don't know why that is necessarily, but it just seemed to be the case. And, um, and so I, I, that's the only reason I asked that, but mm-hmm. I think more to your question, I think the first thing, if you want to try to find community, I think, I think doing you did extremely brave. Um, and I think it's, you get rewarded when you do brave things, um, which is that you picked up and moved and said, you know what, this is not where I belong. And I want to go find a place that 
that resonates with me and I'm going to go live there. And I don't know what that's going to bring, but I'm going to do it. Um, I think that is super powerful because you are taking matters into your own hands and making a decision as opposed to saying, oh, well, my environment sucks and I don't like it here. Yeah. Right. So if we if we become the victim and we step into step into a sort of victim consciousness, then we, everything that comes at us will keep us locked in that state of being a victim. For sure. Whereas if we and take power and control of that situation um, and decide to do something, then we tend to get rewarded. Um, and so I think, yes, you can absolutely change your circumstances and it may not be easy. But like I said, I think the universe tends to reward that bravery. So I think that's one one way to do it. The other way to do it is figure out what your purpose is. Figure out what you enjoy. Figure out what you like doing and do that stuff. So, okay, I'm in San Diego here in Carlsbad. I don't particularly enjoy surfing, but let's say I, I did. Let's say that was my thing. Well, the more I would go and do the thing I love, which might be surfing, the more I would find people that are surfers. Right. And uh, might be a surf club, might be the surf shop, might be whatever, or might be just just some dudes I go meet at the beach. Right. So now I find my community in that thing that I enjoy. Now, let's say I said, oh, I'm going to pick up a new skill like the violin. So I buy a violin or I pick up uh, one used off of uh, Craigslist or something and I start playing the violin and I go into the violin store. And I talk to the guy and say, hey, you know, what kind of what should I do and how do you do this and what, what do you think about this? And um, then I look at this place and I have this violin meetup, you know, that I go to and I start playing violin with other people. You know, and these are the things, right? Yeah. If you enjoy yoga, go to the yoga classes. If you do, if you want to pick up Tai Chi, go to Tai Chi. I mean, there's lots of free things. If you play softball, go, you can find your community in the things that you love. Right. And I think because our environment does not foster community naturally, like we used to in village type settings, we, we may have to go outside of that setting to go find the community that we feel like we belong in. And so, again, if we, if we don't, if we step into this sort of victim consciousness and say, you know, oh, my life sucks, um, then, yeah, you're going to kind of be in that scenario. But if you kind of step up and take, take back your power and go do the things and be brave, and sometimes being brave is very simple, just talking to somebody <laughs> at a local coffee shop, right? Yeah. Um, we find that, that that tends to be a brave thing these days. Um, it's just the, that type of thing. Go to the farmer's market, a uh, very good place to meet people. Uh, go to your local co-op. And go into the herb section. Hey, uh, you know, I, I want to improve my kidney health. What do you What do you uh, recommend? You know, and these people are like, all they want to do is share their knowledge of herbs. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, totally. So happy to tell you, you know, take this herb. So these are the type of things, and it's very, very simple. Have conversations, find mutual connections, and you start doing that, and, and the community start to sprout out of nowhere. You know, we can use social media to sort of foster community. I wouldn't say. That that's your should be your only community, but you can use that as a tool to develop community. Right. So, you know, this is simple stuff. We just have to go back to some of the most basic aspects of this. And um, I think finding the things that you enjoy or your purpose um, or donating your time or your whatever. I think this is such an easy way. You know, go to a community house build. Mm -hmm. You know, um, and you you never know who you're going to find. What I've noticed about life is that when you do things that again sort of require bravery or kind of you stepping out of your comfort zone, um, really amazing things happen. Mm -hmm. And I'll give you one quick example of this that you can relate to, which is I started a podcast, I think it was a couple of years ago. Yeah. And I didn't know how to start. I was not really savvy in the sort of media broadcasting space. And I was like, ah, oh, screw it. I'm going to start a podcast. And so I did. And then I, I won't go into the details, but because of that, I met certain people and certain opportunities came my way 
because I just started that podcast and it snowballed into these really weird string of events that led me to where I'm now. And I left the podcast behind and I recognized that I didn't need to continue it. That that was the purpose was to actually meet these people and do these other things. So, you know, it was like, wow, all because I said, screw it one day and I'm just going to do this. Yeah. You know, I didn't ask why I didn't analyze it. I didn't, you know, there was no grand vision. It's just like, you know what, screw it. I'm going to do it. And I did it. Right. And it turned into amazing things. So I think you just have to get out of your comfort zone, find the things you enjoy, follow your heart and good things start to happen. And the community will naturally kind of percolate up. Right. And, you know, the thing you said about the farmer's market really struck a chord with me because uh, I've only been here for four years now. And my dad came to visit last year and we took, I took him to the farmer's market. We've got like four on Saturday, another one on Sunday, another one on Wednesday. I mean, we've got like this just for the small town. <laughs> we've got so many farmer's markets. And uh, he went, when we got back from the first farmer's market, he's like, why don't you just run for mayor? Yeah. So you, he's like, you know, everybody. And, to, <laughs> it's, yeah. and it's, and, and my husband jokes about it too, because, you know, just going to the markets, talking to the vendors, you know, finding out what their families are like and, you know, what's, what's in season. What's, you know, did you pick this? Did this come from Oahu or, uh, you know, oh no, it came from my neighbor or, oh, are these the really good blah, blah, blah that comes from such and such, you know, like you just develop this rapport with people and they become part of, of your um, of your community, you know, they co- become yeah. part of, um, you know, your Ohana, your family. Yeah, um, exactly. You know, your larger family, so to speak. Uh, and you didn't have to try, right? You no. Just, you did the things that were natural and that you wanted to do. Exactly. And and I was going to say, to take that a step further, everywhere I have traveled, I have also sought out the same kinds of foods I try to eat at home. So I end up at the farmer's markets. I end up stopping when I see, you know, an old lady's hand-painted sign for vino at her house, you know, and I show up with my empty water bottle. Like, can you fill this granny? Um, You know, like all of these things give you such a different appreciation for your environment, no matter where you are. So even if you leave the comfort of your, you know, your locale, where you were born or where you live normally and you go on vacation and you start saying like, Hmm, I mean, food just brings people together. That's, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's why we, I think that's one of the reasons why people do focus on the dietary more than the, than the relationships because they don't realize that those two things play together. Right. Uh, but naturally that's what happens. I mean, you talked about that uh, an hour and 45 minutes ago when we started, uh, <laughs> where, you know, the, 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 it's the context, it's the historical context of us eating these foods in the company of loved ones, playing a game of dominoes, uh, you know, relaxing, maybe taking a nap, you know, somebody might turn on the TV, somebody might turn on the radio, you know, playing cards, whatever it is. But these are, you know, it's not, oh, I'm going to eat this, you know, politically correct, whatever meal as fast as I can so I can get back to work. That's not right. And, that's, and when that's we, were, we were going and interviewing these people, um, you know, in Greece and Costa Rica, you know, we'd, we'd interview them. And first of all, it was really interesting that when we knock on the door, quote unquote, um, you know, it's not like we had an appointment. We didn't send an email in advance. You know, these were like 92 year olds and we were <laughs> going through locals and translators and, hey, do you know anybody? Right. And they said, oh, yeah, this person over here. Um, and so we knock on the door basically and say, Hey, here we are. Can we, you know, can we interview you right now? You know, this type of thing. And almost always they're very welcoming. They're saying that, yes, come on in. And we'd interview them. And then, um, like for probably half of them, they, they 
not only invited, but they insisted that we stay for some sort of meal or something. Right. And they, they, they gave us a meal and, and, and we enjoyed food together. And they didn't ask, you know, what we like and, you know, do we have any food intolerances? Right. <laughs> they just made, they brought the meal, right? And so, um, you know, I, I think you're right. And I think we saw this firsthand. We experienced this where people just, they want to share food with you. And it's a way that you can sit down and slow down and communicate and enjoy. Uh, it's a common thing that we all share, which is this love for food yeah. um, and this appreciation for food. So it's just an easy way to foster community and foster conversation and connection. Right, right. And so, and, you know, just to kind of go back to a lot of what we talked about, then, you know, now in America, we've made it so difficult for people to reach out with food. Because yeah. it's, you know, like, oh, come over for Thanksgiving. Well, are you going to have something that's gluten-free for me? Right. Bring your own damn gluten-free food. <laughs> right. You know, like, the, and I've gotten to that point with some people where it's like, okay, I know it's not, like, really a problem for you. You just want to cre- – because I saw you eating gluten yesterday. Right. So don't, right. so don't make me go out of my way to make you something gluten-free or vegan or whatever. Like, my one friend, she loves to tell, tell a story about a guy – who, you know, he was Jewish and he said, oh, well, you know, I can't have any pork products. So just make sure there's no pork. She's, she walked in the kitchen. Dude was like, was like shoving a ham down his throat. <laughs> she was like, really? <laughs> really? Okay. Well, you know, yeah, that's, that just makes it difficult now. <laughs> it's just gotten weird. Yeah. It's really gotten weird. And, and unfortunately to, there's not enough people asking the first question should, should be, is this organic? You know, right. I mean, that really should be the first question that we should be asking ourselves anytime we put something in our mouth. And, you know, and that's like step one. That's like half of a step. The, you know, the right. reality is, is it should be coming from local near us. You know, that's the real way to do it. So uh, so we got a long way to go, but we're getting there. And I think um, we're starting to wake up because all this dogma that we've been perpetuating for the last, you know, 30, 40 years is starting to fall apart. And I think we're waking up because it didn't work and it's not working. And so we're, we're, we're forcing, we're being forced to, to look at the reality of the situation. Um, because we're getting sicker and it's not, it's not helping. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll figure it out, but I think it's, it's really not that tricky. Just look at nature and look at historical context of things. And there's your answer. It's really simple. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, same thing with growing plants because, uh, you just look at the signs of nature, you know, how does nature, you know, why, why is there a forest of all the same trees? You know, what are the things that nature's telling me, um, when this thing grows and that thing doesn't, or well, you know. <laughs> well, and and what happens when we look at a plant, right, that we're growing in our in our yard or in our house and it looks sick? What do we think of? Okay, well, if you think think about the soil. Something's wrong with the soil, um, and it's not getting enough sun, or there's uh, or the water. Something with the water, right? So food, water, soil, sun. You think you're any different than a plant? Yeah. Well, right? pl- in many cultures, the plants are our ancestors. Of course. Um, so there's there's really no separation. You know, we're very kingdomist, aren't we? <laughs> right. like the well, plant kingdom. And, and, and then we look at our dogs, right? We take our dogs out to go to the bathroom and we look at their poop and, and it's all runny or whatever. We're like, oh, something's your dog sick. Right. Well, why don't we look at our own poop and do the same thing? No, no. We treat our animals right. so much better than we do ourselves. Right. It's, it's comical. So, you know, we, we really just have to get back to, to reality here. <laughs> right. Absolutely. And, and look at how silly we've been, and it's okay, you know. Uh, let go of the judgment, and let go of the, the fear and the anxiety, and just uh, just look look at how silly we've been, and, and just start to correct things and move back towards a a more harmonious way of living. And I think as we do that and slowly peel the onion back, 
we start to recognize um, the power of that and the beauty of that and the fun of that, um, as opposed to looking at everything from a, uh, the lens of convenience. And, mm-hmm. right? So nature is not convenient, um, but it is efficient and it works. So we need to go back to that. And um, this idea of convenience only comes into play when you talk about the, uh, not even the quality of time, but the quantity of time, mm-hmm. right? So convenience measure is, is about quantity of time. So in other words, how much can I do in a certain quantity of time? Mm-hmm. Well, lots of societies throughout history actually looked at quality of time, right? The Greeks were probably the famous, most famous for this, um, looking at the, qual- the qualitative nature of time, the qualitative aspect of time. You notice how we say, we even say this in our words, right? Um, uh, the good, um, time flies when you're having fun, right? Yes. Yeah, so that's a, that's a qualitatively different aspect of time. Or when you're in, let's say you're in the zone for something, you might feel like time stops because you're just so focused and in the zone. And it's like, whoa, you know, that was a qualitatively different situation that I was in. The time, the linear time was the same. But my perception and the quality of that time is, is, is changed. So, so it's not about convenience. It's not about how much more can I do in a certain amount of time. It's how can I enjoy and appreciate the time that I have um, such that we can recognize the beauty in each sort of moment, right, or in each day. And I think that's, that's really what we need to get back to. And that's really what nature is good at. And that's, 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 that's not what technology is good at. It's not what, what convenience is good at. Um, nature is really perfected that. So that's where we can take a walk in the forest or go to the beach, right, um, and do these very simple things. And we can understand those, those aspects. And that's, uh, that's what I found in Hawaii. You know, Hawaii is a very easy example of that. Um, you start to really see the beauty in the very simple things, uh, yes. a walk on the beach, uh, a walk in the amazing forests of Hawaii. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's crazy, the difference between that and sitting in a, in a house on a computer doing email. Right. right. Absolutely. Same, Same time. It's just like the qualitative difference is massive. I do have to say people hustle here in Hawaii, though. Like everybody <laughs> thinks that, every, you know, like you talked about Hawaii time earlier. And yeah, yeah there's some people who are a little bit, uh, lax, let's just say with, um, you know, their time management, but people work like two and three jobs here. I know one woman, she brags about it. She's, she's totally, you know, mainlander, but she's, she's like, yeah, I work five jobs just to put my kid through school. And I'm like, it's very true. It's definitely not every, but but if you look at like the surfer culture, right? Like that's a really good example of a certain culture that, that really looks at things a little bit differently. Oh, so, right? Some of my old Hawaiian friends too, they, they are like, they just go out fishing, you know, <laughs> it's yeah. such, such a, it's, you know, they, and they have their, it's very much like Costa Rica where like, you, for example, somebody might go fishing and then they just put up, they pop up a tent by the side of the road and they just hang out there all the afternoon, <laughs> sell yeah, their there's, fish. There's, and, there's nowhere to go. It's yeah. like, come on, you know? So yeah, it's, uh, we have to, we have to adopt a little bit of that, I think. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I had to go to the mainland to New Jersey uh, for a funeral back in, in November. And I stepped off the plane. And I was, I just wanted to get right back on. I, I, I was like, you have got to be me. It was like, <laughs> it was yeah. like the, just dealing with the, the people on the mainland and everybody was grumpy. And, you know, they, they gave you like the crappiest directions to, just to get to the other side of the airport. And, you know, like somehow I was supposed to know that they shut down the shuttle bus on Sunday. I, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like the, the whole thing was so such a slap in the face that I was like, really? I put up with this for like 40, how many years? Yeah, yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. So please tell us where and when we can see your film, the Human Longevity film. 
Yeah, the Human Longevity Project comes out May 7th. So um, it's a nine-part documentary film series. Um, we will be releasing an episode per day for free. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, you can sign up on our website, and I think we'll probably just give you a link. That's probably the easiest thing for you to put it in the show notes or something uh, yeah. that people can click on and go right to it. Um, but, yeah, you sign up, and, and you'll be able to watch the entire series for free. Um, the goal is to spread this information. So, you know, um, we'll be showing each episode for 24 hours, um, and we'll we'll, we'll – go through the series and, and, uh, there's a lot of bonuses and a lot of cool things we have up our sleeve as well. So, nice. um, so May 7th online, um, everywhere in the world. So, uh, there's, there's no reason not to, not to check it out and, and see what's there. Cause I think there's, there's some cool things for everybody that, that, that can be powerful takeaways. You know? Yeah. I can't imagine. I mean, we, we barely scratched the surface here in two hours. Uh, but, um, yeah, but yeah, I mean, there's just, you can, I mean, nine, nine parts, but I looked also at the list of people um, that you have, uh, you know, speaking in the, in the film and it's really, it's really impressive. And I love the fact that you actually went and just knocked on doors like, Hey, you know, somebody, you know, that, that's where you get yeah. the best information. It's not these canned you know, exactly. responses from people who've been, you know, kind of up on what they, what you might want to hear, let's say. Exactly. You yep. know, and, yep. and that's, I think that's been a big problem when we talk about issues of longevity and, you know, what contributes to that is everybody wants to impress you with how modern their people are, you know, in light of the food pyramid, for example. <laughs> right, right. Well, and even new technologies, right? And, yeah. and new things that we're doing with stem cells and mitochondria and, gene editing and there's lots of cool stuff coming but at the end of the day i think if we forget the fact that we are part of a bigger organism called mother earth yeah. and that, that that our you know our decisions impact everything around us i don't care how good we are at stem cell therapy and, and gene editing and mitochondrial gene editing and all this amazing technological stuff for poisoning the planet we hate ourselves and we're not living in, in tune with nature like it's not going to work out for us i don't i don't care how good science gets yeah <laughs> no care. you're right you're absolutely- it doesn't matter right so we have to come back to this and, and i think this is where the old wisdoms that that we get from these 95 year olds and 102 year olds can really come and, and shine a light on some of the the info that we may not have gotten in our culture in our generations um and, and we can use to go to move forward because technology is not going away and it's, technology is not a bad thing. We just have to understand how to use it and also that it's not a full replacement for how we should be living. So I think we have to kind of marry these things. And that's really the goal of the film is to, is to take the, the ancient wisdoms and also take the modern understanding and look at the reality of the situation, which is technology is going to keep going forward and, and do so in a massive, you know, exponential kind of trajectory. And if we can just use it properly, um, then we, we have a really powerful tool to heal the planet, heal ourselves. Mm-hmm. If we continue to do things the wrong way, then we continue to poison and kill the planet and poison and kill ourselves. So which, which route do we want to go? It's up to us. Right, exactly. You know, it's <laughs> it's like it's Spider Man. You know, the, with uh, with great power comes responsibility, right? <laughs> so, yeah, so you know, and and we um, have this habit of always looking outside of ourselves, and we're always looking out there for the answer. It's somebody else to provide with the answer. Yeah. And I thank you so much for creating this film that looks back to the wisdom that brought us through millennia as yeah. as part of the human, you know, this this ecosystem of mother earth and you know really just underscoring the fact that the you know the problem was kind of solved by natural <laughs> selection you know and, and and the things that our ancestors did we don't i mean we can 
definitely incorporates some of the wisdom of science of modern science, but it doesn't mean that it overrides our basic um, human needs and and you know our our place within nature, just like everything else. Like we seem to think that nature is is very separate from us when in fact we are just one tiny component of right. all that nature has to offer. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, I thank you for having me. It's just, it's, it's always a pleasure to, to meet like-minded people and, and, uh, and share ideas. And, and I, I thank you for giving me the platform to, to spread the word about the film and, and just some of these topics that I'm sort of so passionate about sharing. Well, thank you. I mean, I, you're welcome, but, <laughs> but, but also, no, seriously, thank you for, for doing the film. Thank you for agreeing to talk with us and uh, thank you for not being loaded with BS. <laughs> you know, because because there was that potential when I first saw like uh, one of your colleagues had posted on Facebook, and I was like, "Oh yeah, I have a podcast." And I was like, "Wait a minute, what am I getting myself into?" So, um, you know, I'm I'm really happy um, that uh, you really brought a balance to this concept uh, that I think on our island, unfortunately, the way it has been presented to us, people have lost sight of that. Um, and, and they, you know, they took it in a direction that is more ideological mm. than yeah. practical and historically relevant. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm always aiming to be, you know, transparent and honest. Uh, so I, I think that always wins out. I think people can, can sense the BS, um, you know, on some level. So hopefully this is, the, you know, these honest messages and then, uh, who knows if they're accurate, right? I mean, I think the goal is to always try to be as accurate as you can from your standpoint. And right. um, I think what resonates with people will, will, will tend to find its way to the top. So uh, that's always the goal. And, and at the end of the day, you know, I think we, we just present what we think um, is valid and useful. And I think people can always decide what, what to take home and what, it, what works for them. And I would always encourage people to, to decide for themselves that there's nobody out there with all the answers. And you are the only person that matters when it comes to decisions for you. So... I think that's what we have to get back to. Yeah, for sure. Well, again, folks, the URL is humanlongevityfilm.com. You can also find him on Facebook at The Human Longevity Project and on Instagram, Human Longevity Project. Thank you, Jason Prawl, for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. This concludes our interview with Jason Prawl of The Human Longevity Project. You can watch his film for free starting May 7th at nutritionheretic.com forward slash long life. The Nutrition Heretic Podcast is a production of Savor the Journey, LLC. Our audio editor is Nikola Popovich. Our podcast manager is Crystal McLean. And our operations manager is Michelle Med. I'm your host, Adrian Hugh, the Nutrition Heretic. You can find us at the new and improved nutritionheretic.com, where you can download the Nutrition Heretic's free shit list of seven health foods to avoid like the plague. You can also listen to previous episodes at nutritionheretic.com forward slash podcast. Be sure to like us on social media for updates. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash nutritionheretic and on Twitter at NutriHeretic. Contact us with show ideas, questions, or if you want to be a guest. And don't forget to rate our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher.